from the Southeast Asian capital city of the Philippines, Manila, I bid you all good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world's time zones, howdy. I'm Art Bell filling in for, I'm not really sure, I think it might be George this Sunday night. It's going to be a blast because, as many of you know, my favorite topic in all the world is time travel. Now, this, uh, this particular program is going to be above fascinating. That's like above top secret or something because Dr. David Anderson, who was one of my esteemed time travelers, actually a researcher. Well, over the years, I've had a number of time travelers and researchers, and Dr. David Anderson did do some time travel in a sense. And he, along with so many others, just disappeared. And uh, Dr. Anderson has been gone for years to reappear tonight. And I, I have no idea what the story is, but we're certainly going to find out. All the ABs are just fine. There should be shortly a new picture up there for you to take a look at of uh, Miss Asia Bell. Um, other than that, uh, all the information as it was uh, is as it was the other day. Let's look quickly at the news. The U.S. military now is going back to Haiti in the sense of uh, returning the flights of the critically injured to the United States. Uh, Florida certainly overtaxed. The, the hospitals and care facilities in Florida have been woefully overtaxed. And Florida is begging for other states and shouldn't have to beg for other states to pick up some of the load in fiscally very difficult times. Florida is doing a great job. Congrats to Florida. The uh, same was true of these Baptists who tried to bring back 33 children from Haiti. And, of course, they weren't supposed to do that. got in trouble. Um, Something about uh, illegal trafficking of children. But they were trying to do the right thing, the Christian thing, and trying to get him out of Haiti. Obama is handing in his $3.8 trillion, $3.8 trillion budget. $3.8 trillion. Trillion dollars. My God, that's a lot of money. Do we have that much money? Uh, the two Koreas are going to, after, after trading shots across the border, artillery and that kind of thing, the two Koreas are, are now going to discuss economic cooperation. North Korea certainly could use a little bit of that. They are poor beyond description. North Korea is a disaster. And if they could use anything, they could certainly use some economic cooperation. So they should stop with the artillery and start with the talking. And I guess they're going to. All right, coming up shortly, David Lewis Anderson is a physicist whose interests are in space-time physics, special relativity, and global community service. That's pretty cool. Global uh, community service. He was employed uh, at a young age by the United States Air Force, conducting advanced research and development of the Air Force Flight Test Center. That would be at Edwards Air Force Base. He later founded the organization called TTRC, an advanced time technology research laboratory. David provided one of the first comprehensive overviews of the historical views of time, time control, and time travel in the documentary Time Travel, Journeys into Time. 
His ideas were later applied to the development of high-performance time reactor systems. This, this bio just brings up its own questions. For energy production and time technology research at what is known today as the Anderson Institute. David is the president and CEO of Anderson Multinational LLC, headquartered in New York. He holds multiple patents relating to time technology and also for time reactor designs. Time reactor designs. That, that alone is absolutely fascinating. So, in a moment, Dr. David Anderson. Well, all right, here we go. Um, been really looking forward to this. Dr. David Anderson, welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Art, good afternoon. It is such a pleasure uh, to be back with you on Coast to Coast, and uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight's show. We've been gone, as you mentioned, for quite some time, and I think we have some really important messages we'd like to get out to people who are listening to your show tonight, and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, what kind of phone are you on, uh, Doctor? Uh, I'm on a landline, uh, but we actually have a, we, we don't have landlines in the research center. We're on a satellite connection right now. Uh, how's the audio, Okay. Well, it's it's okay. Uh, it's not wonderful. It's usable, but um, so you're actually on a satellite connection, huh? Yeah, for for operational security, we do not have uh, landlines. All of our connections go through encrypted satellite. Wow, wow! I say again. All right. Well, look, this is going out of order because you're absolutely right. Five years ago, man, you disappeared. It's like you were going off the face of the earth, and you were absolutely one of my favorite guests. Now, you, along with a lot of other uh, claimed time travelers just flat disappeared. I mean, you're not the only one, but but you're one, and here you are back. It's five years later. What? What? Can you tell me what happened? Oh, I, I suppose I can. Um, if I if I didn't want to, I suppose I wouldn't be on the show. But uh, many people, uh, since we just became public again, uh, were shocked by our disappearance, and and actually, it surprises me when people are are surprised. Uh, basically, when we were in operation uh, on Long Island and somewhat public, we had a number of private and government partners, and uh, the visibility and results we were seeing in the work were so profound uh, and the need to protect it so high that we decided to go dark and to take the program, if you will, underground and underneath the radar uh, for a couple reasons why we established a wider network of development competencies and operational considerations, primarily security control of the technology. And I remember the last time we talked, Art, the results, we had just started, I believe, the uh, testing of our third generation time warp field generator. And when we hit that third generation, which is only about two months after our show with you, realized what we had. And we also realized that we needed two things. We needed desperately to work to control how the technology is applied and used. And, and second, we really just reached a point, Art, where we needed additional resources well beyond what we had at our facility on Long Island. So we basically, for four years, uh, didn't disappear. We've actually been uh, extremely busy building a new global organization that spans all the way from Asia through the Middle East into the Americas. Okay. Um, because it's been five years, uh, Dr. Anderson, let's, let's go back and give the folks uh, an idea of where you were five years ago. I mean, you were astounding me with what you were telling me you were doing five years ago. So if you can kind of recap where you were, 
that long ago for the audience, uh, what you were actually able to do, that'll help as a baseline for us to get started here. Oh, of course. Um, after leaving uh, my role as a scientist with the United States Air Force, uh, we had set up a, uh, a time research center on Long Island, New York, and we had uh, developed what we had called time warp field theory years prior, and we were able actually to generate within the lab small fields, which we called time warp fields, uh, within which we could accelerate or decelerate the rate of time passage relative to the rate at which time passed outside the field. So essentially, in a, in a small controlled area, we were able to control the rate of time. What was most unique about that, um, a lot of people think it's unique that we could do it. What we're going to talk about a little bit later, hopefully, is the fact that we're not the only ones doing it. Um, but what was unique is that we found a way to do it with much less input power than was previously thought possible. So essentially, we had created uh, small time warp fields. We were able to accelerate and decelerate time rates. We had a lot of unknowns, a lot of challenges at that time that we had talked about on your previous show. And uh, in, the, in the recent years, we've really grown to understand uh, what we've been seeing uh, in the laboratory uh, around time warp field generators. All right. But again, that, 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 of course, was five years ago. Now, how were you able to prove uh, to yourself that you were actually actually moving in time? Another, in other words, were you able to put a, a clock or a watch or something inside this field and then see a, a difference, or how was it done? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we used all different types of electronic measurement equipment. Uh, as you know, we, there was a lot of debate around our last show about uh, experimentation on living organisms. We never, uh, at that time, what we had focused on, we had also uh, used germination cycles of specific types of, of, of plants or seedlings as a uh, reference point in our experiments. So at that point in time, we had used um, test instrumentation. We had also used living organisms in the forms of plants and seedlings that had very, very predictable germination cycles and actually were able to successfully demonstrate the acceleration and deceleration of time. So in other words, put simply, you could put uh, some dirt, a little water, I suppose, into a pot, put the plant in there with the seed sitting there, I guess, in water, uh, throw this thing forward in time, and 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 in just the flash of an instant or or well maybe you should tell me in your experimentation uh doctor how long would you leave the example i just gave inside the field uh before bringing it out you know linear earth time <laughs> well in in time rates outside of the field we'd actually um we would actually do testing that ranged anywhere from minutes to days. And at that point in time, I believe that was right around in 2002, the first half of 2002, we were able actually to accelerate time at a rate of 300% uh, faster within the field uh, than the rate of time that passed outside of the field or normal or human time or earth time, as you say. Um, uh, decelerating time was also something, if you might recall, we were wrestling with at the time, uh, but we actually also had good results in that area as well. I, I think the most amazing result we've seen, and it was interesting because I was having some discussions with some peers and actually a, a fellow scientist from India who had actually visited our lab, and we talked about one of the most greatest tests we do, Art, 
and for your listeners out there, is actually the experience of seeing a time warp field in operation. My friend asked me what was the most, just out of the blue, he said, what is the most uh, um, um, amusing thing uh, or humorous thing that we had seen from our testing? And the most humorous thing is actually what he came back and told me today was the actual experience. When somebody first sees a time warp field in operation with their own eyes, first it's doubting, and then there's a lot of questions. It moves into a stage of amazement, and then what happens almost all the time, two things, three things happen after that, after people see a time warp field generator in operation, laughter. People laugh because they cannot believe that what they're seeing in front of their eyes truly can happen. Uh, then there's kind of a feeling of a, of a deep emotion. The fact that when people realize that what they perceive as reality um, isn't real uh, based upon their belief system in their own human mind, it moves to deep emotion. And then the thing that happened, which is why I got the call from India uh, today, was is the third thing that happens is that people who visit and see a time warp field generator in operation come back and say they can never experience life the same way because when they see what actually can happen in the fabric of space and time, they realize how much greater, you know, the reality is than what they can perceive. Okay, so Doctor, uh, Doctor, I'm, I'm a radio guy. We're radio, and what you're describing right now leaves me very hungry. In other words, I, I want to, if maybe what you could do for us is, since you've done it so many times and you've watched a time warp field generator run for varying periods of time, the amazement you just told me about, can, can you sort of visually stand in front of this for us right now and describe what you would see and the amazement that it would generate? In other words, what would you actually see once someone turns on the switch? Well, in a, uh, in a time warp field generator, generator today, uh, the initiation of a time warp field is quite spectacular. Um, between the combinations of different chemical reagents and high-energy lasers we use to excite or initiate a time warp field, very spectacular. A lot of light, a lot of energy, uh, a little bit of sound that the visitors are actually insulated from. Uh, the next thing that you see... Um, and one of the most powerful demonstrations we do is actually, uh, you've probably seen the mechanical clocks that use the small balls uh, that move back and forth and, and advance. We actually right. do, an, we do an experiment where we, re, we reverse the time rates inside the field, slow them down, and then, to a small degree, reverse the time rate. So the clock, you can actually sit there and watch what people perceive as gravity move slower the clock begins to slow down uh, to a oh point uh, where we actually, the clock appears almost to stop and then begin to reverse. And the clock actually does reverse. The mechanical operation of the clock reverses. The balls move upwards against gravity, if you will. Aye, but, aye, aye. but in that case, we actually have a visibility issue along the boundary layers of the field that make it difficult to observe that from outside. But it's an amazing experience, and, and I'm really hoping that many more people will have the chance, and uh, that's one of the messages about disclosure that I'd like to talk about with your listeners tonight. So you've been able to achieve, uh, going forward in time, a 300% um, increase. In other words, for one minute in the machine while it's running, you are three minutes ahead. Am I correct? That is correct, and we are talking about 2002 results, and we've come come quite further since then. Oh my goodness! Um, 
are the, I, <laughs> obviously with the kind of work you're doing right now, um, a lot of it is going to be stuff that I guess you can't talk about, but I'm going to push as far as I can, and you just tell me when I can't push anymore, okay? Please do. Please do. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, uh, there is such a great risk art, uh, of how this technology can be used. Um, a, a lot of people ask me, you know, what if, how it will be used. The issue today is no longer what if and how the technology is being used. It's being used in Japan, in India. Uh, there are efforts in China with the second lar- country with the second largest R&D budget in the world who's driving towards capabilities. It's really now a question of, of how do we manage the influence that governments have on this technology today uh, that become a real, a real concern and a challenge for people on this planet. Oh, my God. Well, do you have, uh, Doctor, any sense of um, where other countries, particularly China, I would imagine, uh, you just mentioned they've got a very, very large R&D budget, money to burn, as it were, our money, actually. Um, how far into this technology are they uh, with respect to what you're doing? Do you, do you have a sense at all? Uh, absolutely, and uh, maybe a couple things uh, that might be interesting to your listeners as well. Uh, in China, um, we're very active with China. We actually, uh, the Anderson Institute actually met with the members of the National People's Congress for Education, Science, and Culture, and also the Minister of Science and Technology. Uh, they have a very, their government, their agencies have a very strong desire uh, to really make an entry into uh, time control technology. They've even attempted to replicate and reverse engineer several capabilities being used by other governments. Uh, they're having limited success. But like I mentioned, they have the second largest R&D budget in the world, and, and they shouldn't be underestimated. We actually use something, and um, I know I'm throwing a lot of new things uh, uh, at your listeners here. We have a device called a TTD. Uh, it's a, um, how do I describe it? Uh, it? It's a temporal tremor detector, like a seismic detector you use for, for earthquakes. And Obviously, when we work with governments, governments do not disclose um, a lot of the activities that they do. Some do. You'd be be surprised how willing some governments are to open their doors. But we use a TTD to measure activity, and what we we detected in China are some low capabilities. One of the most interesting areas, though, is not too far from you, just a little bit north in Japan. Um, We do a lot of work in Japan for autonomous control systems for our time reactor designs. But what a lot of people don't know uh, which is now becoming public in Japan, that just north of Kyoto City, uh, in the mountains along the shore of, uh, I think it's called Biwa Lake, um, there is a research facility uh, funded by the Japanese government with only one goal, and it's time control technology. And their activity level there is really high. Uh, Russia continues, they always have, all the way since the days of the Moscow Aviation Institute, um, Russia's been very active in this, even things like... Um, if you might recall, Dr. Yulian Wang at Princeton University many years back um, uh, demonstrated um, the ability to send information faster than the speed of light. Russia's been doing that as well, and they're trying to build on that. Of course. Okay, uh, let, let, let me stop and ask you a question. You mentioned an, a TTD, I think it was temporal time detector. Is that correct? A temporal tremor detector. Tremor, I'm sorry. Uh, so are you telling me that Much like an earthquake, uh, you're able to monitor and even perhaps understand where these time experiments are occurring because when the experiments are done, 
they they cause some sort of disruption in the time stream or in in I I don't even know what term to use. I, I think it's the best to call it the, within the fabric of space time. That sounds like an old term, but believe it or not, from what we're seeing in the lab uh, today, coming back to the concept of calling you know the construct of space time the fabric of space time makes a lot of sense. But the short answer is yes. Uh, okay, okay, hold much- hold it right there, Doctor. We're already at a break point. Um, so every now and then, we've got to take a break here on the program. Uh, that's what pays for it all. So, stay right there from Southeast Asia, Manila, in the Philippines. I'm Art Bell. All right, this this is not just hot stuff. This is on fire. My guest is Doctor David Anderson, and we're talking about time travel, real time travel. Five years ago, when I interviewed Doctor Anderson, he was doing time travel. God knows what he's done since then, and maybe the Japanese and the Chinese and a few others, because they're also doing it, detectable by a TTD, a temporal time, or make that temporal tremor detector that detects uh, movement or change in the fabric of space-time, as other countries also do this. He's on a secure satellite line, so he sounds a little different. Not as good as he might on a regular landline, uh, because they don't have regular... All they have is secure lines where he is located. And and by the way, I don't know where that is. I don't know where he's located, and he may not want to tell us. He used to be on Long Island, but right now he's on Coast to Coast AM. So if you'll stay right where you are, David Anderson will be right back. All right, I want to remind the audience there are two ways to get hold of me. Uh, One is during the program, and that's Fast Blast. Go to coasttocoastam.com, and you can type, you know, a sentence or a question to me, and I'll get it instantly, speed of light, here in Manila. And if I consider it uh, really worthy, I will ask Dr. Anderson that question. So that's a way of sort of getting a question through to the program. Second way, of course, is to email me. I love getting emails. I'll try to answer your emails. I'm doing the very best I can. If I don't answer yours, please don't feel put upon. I just didn't answer it for some reason. Sorry. But if you'd like to email me and take a shot, I'm Art Bell at MindSpring.com. That's A-R-T-B-E-L-L, A-R-T-B-E-L-L at MindSpring, M-I-N-D. S-P-R-I-N-G dot com. Now, once again, on a secure satellite line from... New Mexico. uh, Oh, okay, you're in New Mexico. Yes, I am. We're up in the northwest corner of New Mexico. Um, We're at a a secure facility here, and uh, I I don't like to give more information other than that. People can find contact information on our websites if they would like to contact us. Okay, so people can get to you by email, that sort of thing. Absolutely, yes. All right. Um, as of five years ago, you had, um, you'd worked with plant life. Uh, you'd actually sent plant life, I assume, into the future. Um, what about the past? Uh, what about the past? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, Art, could I ask you a favor? You'd asked me a question just before break, and I didn't say probably one of the most exciting things. Uh, you'd asked me about where research is happening. Could I make one addition to that before we oh, transition? Absolutely. Well, uh, for me, when I look at all the activity happening in the world today in time research, um, and this is why I'm so excited to be here, is not talk about necessarily what we're doing, what other people are doing. What ha- what's happening in India is absolutely remarkable. Uh, their Ministry of Science and Technology in New Delhi and their uh, what they call their DRDO, it's their Defense Research and Development Organization, they've set up 
a massive facility and project. It is larger in scale by a factor of 10 than anything else in the world on time research. And they're doing this. There's a district um, uh, in the state of, it's called Maharashtra in uh, India, in the Pune district in an area called the Digi Hills. They have a massive facility. And what they've done is they've brought some of the brightest Indian defense research scientists and engineers into that area. And all the whispers among my peers around the world and, and physicists around the world is what's happening there. And uh, we, we have a lot of activity in India because we do, uh, we have some uh, facilities there. We also do a, most of our software development there uh, for our support systems. But what's happening there, and I'd, I'd encourage your listeners, watch what's going to be happening there. It is absolutely phenomenal what they're doing, and they're going way beyond. The activity level we see in India is higher than anywhere else in the world today. Any idea? I mean, after all, we have America, we have the large European nations, we have uh, China here in Asia. Why India? Why India? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful question, Art, and I, and I wish I had a very profound and exciting answer for you. Uh, I think why India, uh, it's, it's only speculation on my part. If you look at their spiritual beliefs and the way they look at time in the universe um, hmm. is, is very unique in the world. Uh, one of my favorite sayings when we're talking to college students around the world is to remind them, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. Um, and, and that's very important. We don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And what's beautiful about the Indian culture in their deep spiritual beliefs is they look at the world as a dynamic web of information and energy. They don't have these barriers um, uh, in their, maybe as much in their human minds as uh, citizens of other countries that, you know, they have to categorize time, put it in a little bucket, put a nice bow around it, and say it's defined and under, feel they understand what it means. They, they don't look at it that way, and perhaps that's the reason. Uh, and also, I think one of the other reasons, Art, and it's something I admire, if you take a look at countries around the world, there's only really one country whose presidents historically are leaders in the scientific community, and India is one of them. Uh, presidents in India uh, are elected based upon their achievements, um, in areas of science. And, and I think that's why you see the explosive growth in India as well as their, what I would say clearly is their dominance in time control technology today. Of all the countries that you would expect to be, as you put it, dominant in time control, time control technology, India. Wow. Um, can we come back to the uh, TTD for a moment? Um, I'm curious, with a nuclear detonation, um, I guess, kind of like a radio signal, you're able to pinpoint where a nuclear detonation takes place, not only by satellite, but uh, uh, by the tremors, uh, the magnitude tremors that are generated in the Earth, and then uh, a triangular uh, a triangulation is made, I suppose, much like, well, you would for uh, a radio signal, and they can determine roughly where the nuclear detonation occurred. Is it roughly the same with, with, with time travel or with time travel experiments when they go on? Um, maybe not so much with time travel. You, know, you notice I've been using the word time control. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I'd even say it's easier. Um, you know, with, with uh, nuclear reactors, not only can you see a nuclear detonation endpoint, in, in our, our satellite systems today can even detect nuclear reactors that, that, are, that are starting up or shutting down 
very, very low energy level. Uh, right. with, a, with a temporal tremor detector, uh, it, it's a lot easier. Um, our, our ability to locate is not so strong, but the, to pinpoint uh, locate, but our ability to tell the level of activity and whether they're working with information or matter um, in their experiments or their, their technology uh, and the level that they're doing it uh, is something that we can detect. Today. Okay. There's this name that you've assigned to a temporal tremor detector. Now, tremor is the keyword for me there. Um, there was a movie, and I can't recall which one it was, uh, in which there was something called time quakes. I'm sure you're familiar with that. In other words, once um, a paradox or something wrong was done in in the course of time travel, uh, it created a, a tremor or an earthquake in the in the space fa- uh, fabric of space time. Is, is is that kind of what you're getting at with a temporal tremor detector? Uh, uh, yes, in some ways, yes. Uh, for me, for me, yes. The short answer is yes, Art. But I also see a more important value. One of the things that concerns myself and many of my peers is how this technology is going to be implied. Uh, the consequences of misapplication of this technology are extreme and can be catastrophic if it's not managed well. What we're really happy about a, temp, uh, a, temp, a TTD is that we can use it in its base technology to determine um, generally where and to what level experiments are going on, which helps support transparency. For me, that's the most exciting element of a TTD, and also it lets us know truly what the state and the state of the art is in uh, different areas or facilities doing this type of work. Could you use it as a, as you say, uh, has been used in science fiction in movies? I'm actually not, from, I'm woefully not familiar with time travel movies, but um, it, could it be used for something like that? Yes, but more in the, if you will, in the, in that moment, uh, not so much looking towards the past or the future. What we're trying to do with the TTD is simply detect uh, disruptions in the fabric of space-time near uh, facilities where work is being done. Okay, let me attempt a couple of uh, let me attempt a couple of questions. You mentioned that once this machine is on, you've been able to achieve a three hundred percent increase. In other words, one minute in the machine, three minutes uh, of time within the machine have passed compared to um, operational real time, however you want to put it. Um, can you tell me? How far into the future you have at any point gone? Uh, At this point, um, I I did give you specifications on our 2002 results, which um, obviously eight years ago. Uh, Unfortunately, this is one question uh, (laughs) I will tell you I can't answer, but I will say at least this, uh, that at least two orders of magnitudes uh, higher in results both uh, in time acceleration and retardation rates. Oh, wow. We have, and, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be, be secret of it. Um, we do have partners uh, all around the world. We have private partners, government interests, and there's certain things that I do have a, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, an obligation, my word, uh, uh-huh. not to share. But hopefully well, that's all right. I, I, told, I told you I'd push as hard as I could. You just let me know when you can't talk about it. Uh, when... Uh, Everybody has always told me, including uh, Professor Kaku, that if time travel is possible, travel into the future is substantially 
going to be easier than travel into the past. Um, would you do you agree that that is so or not? Oh, boy, I can't believe that I'm actually going to disagree with Dr. Kaku because I, uh, I respect him very highly. Actually, what we're seeing and we have been seeing for, for the recent years is actually we're seeing it more of an equal capability. And it has to do more with the nature of the, uh, of the, uh, of the technology that we've been refining. What we're doing is we're creating closed time-like curves. And for your listeners, what a closed time-like curve is simply uh, it's a term very common in physics but it's a term used to describe how uh, space-time can be bent in a way that time actually loops back on itself. And since we're generating closed time-like curves in our new systems, we're finding it equally as easy to move backwards in time as well as forwards. Okay. Uh, actually, that is very close to a term that uh, Dr. Kaku used anyway as a when, when I asked him theoretically about time travel, he said, well, not yet, but if it happens, here's how it might happen. And he was totally talking about folding back uh, space-time and sort of jumping across. And so theoretically, that's how he imagines it might occur. And don't worry about disagreeing with him. Uh, in about four or five instances, things that he had chuckled about a few short years ago, and I've been interviewing him for a number of years, he now no longer chuckles about. In fact, uh, a great number of scientists are working in these areas that were chuckles some years ago. So we don't so easily dismiss anything at all, nor does he anymore. He used to. He used to laugh at the stuff, including UFOs, the possibility of uh, life elsewhere, and all the rest of it. He laughed pretty hard at that. No more. No more. By the way, your show, your show two days ago was absolutely wonderful with uh, Dr. Kako. I, I enjoyed it immensely, and I'd encourage your listeners to get on Streamlink and uh, listen to it. It's always a pleasure to hear what he's up to. Yes, indeed. All right, you mentioned that there's so many directions for me to go, I don't know where to go, but you mentioned a few moments ago that there were some pretty dire possibilities uh, if there was a mistake or misuse of this technology. Um, Help me out here a little. What can go wrong? Oh wow! You know, if we look at the, uh, into the you know the uh, the capabilities for time control, this just has huge implications for society um, uh, that, that are just fascinating. Um, it, it's important, and I'd like to talk about a little bit tonight how important it is that this technology quickly become regulated and um, uh, be made a little more transparent. But with the, with time travel. Uh, some of the benefits are, 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 are talk some of the benefits and some of the, uh, uh, the the dangers. You know, with time travel, all the greatest questions about history could be answered. Scientists could research and catalog, for example, extinct species of plants and animals. Uh, in our world today, paleontologists have done their best to determine what dinosaurs look like and how they behave. But these are just theories today. With time control technology. Um, uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time meeting with people who are, who are not talking about what if. We're way past the what if. It's now how do we use the technology. Um, we could actually determine exactly how dinosaurs look like and be able to study their behavioral patterns. Um, uh, other things that could be done, and uh, I always talk, you know, we, we're talking to uh, producers sometimes contact us and ask us for advice about their movies, but... Uh, with time control technology, one of the benefits is any event in history that is disputed could be viewed, studied, and documented. Uh, documentaries, for
for example, could contain the actual video of the events they're describing instead of recreations. So most producers I talk to are say the recreations are probably much more boring than the uh, the recreations are much more exciting than what the actual events would be. Yes, well, as you know, uh, Professor, uh, with wars, for example, uh, the victors write the story of how it all happened, uh, not the losers. And so, as you point out, to be able to go back in history and actually look at how something really happened versus how the victors wrote the story of how it happened uh, would be interesting indeed. My own personal interest, if I could go back to any time at all, uh, remains as it always has been to go back to the time of Christ when Christ was actually alive and document at least enough so that uh, what other people can take easily as faith, I would be able to know for certain, and that would change what life I have left, I can assure you, Professor. Well, that is such a common topic that we talk about, both as a um, a benefit and one of the reasons why governments uh, are just so um, uh, controlling and secretive. They teach, they treat time technology as one of the darkest projects that that I've ever seen in my experience with the government. Uh, but they also see that as a risk art. Um, many governments feel that if we were to view that period of time and watch the life of Christ, and it disagreed with what the church foundation was built upon, it could cause a level of civil unrest um, that would be very, very difficult to manage. Um, so there's, there, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that. But there's other things that people talk about, like we could add the exact location of Atlantis to all of our historical maps, um, and then we could uncover the things you just said, you know, um, we could undiscover, un- uh, uncover in history all the things um, that we've always speculated about. But there are um, the benefits are obvious, and they may be wonderful, um, and it's exciting that this is no longer science fiction. But by doing these things, are, we really are changing the very makeup of our reality. And do we know what the long-term impact could be on individuals, the human race, and the entire planet? Of course, there's all these benefits we could do two or three shows on all the benefits of time travel. But how do we judge what is really useful? Uh, When we look at our reality, our world, this planet, um, uh, this wonderful planet and all the people on it, the complex web of interdependence that characterizes um, it and our reality um, is so complex it seems beyond our capacity to predict the impact. Do we know how it's going to affect human evolution? By manipulating history, are we on the cusp of forcing an unnaturally and quick rate of change? I know a lot of my peers are going to be angry at me as I discuss this, but many of them, the scientific community is split. Half of the physicists I know are screaming who are involved in this. They want to see disclosure, and half don't. And I'm not saying here that scientists and the research agencies involved should turn our backs on developments in the area. Uh, I'm just trying to point out and emphasize that we must become aware of the awesome implications of this new area of science. Um, So there's tremendous risk uh, in in catastrophes that could be created through um, unintelligent application of the technology. Right. Well, I I did ask you about the the downside of the possibilities for catastrophic developments as a result of it, and you sort of instead launched into the benefits. And I understand why you would do that, but apparently there is the possibility of a gigantic downside. Now, other than uh, really screwing up people's faith as a result of some revelation about Christ or Buddha or 
any early figure in 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 religious history uh there are apparently other downside possibilities i mean we haven't even gotten to the paradox question yet but there there apparently is a lot of downside to it so when we get back from the break which is coming i hope that uh you you can articulate maybe maybe we should begin with with paradoxes i don't i don't know um is is a paradox a real problem Actually, I have some um, really, really key thoughts on that. But you know what? I'd like to answer your question, if you don't mind. You ask a very good question, and I didn't give you a specific answer. When we come back, I'd love to talk about some of the risks. Some of the risks downside. Okay, fine. Stay right where you are. Dr. David Anderson. So after five long years of some of the most amazing interviews I ever did on time travel, here is, once again, Dr. David Anderson. He's been doing five years of work since we last spoke to him. It's time travel. It's not hot. It's on fire. You are. Wow. It's a big wow tonight. Dr. David Anderson is my guest, and uh, I'm, I guess I'm corrected by a listener. Lynn in St. Louis, Missouri, said, uh, Art, please ask your guest this. Are you able to interact with the past? Oh, no, that's not the one I want to read. Uh, this one, uh, Shirley in Royal Oak, Michigan. Art, you keep saying five years since you last talked to Dr. Anderson. Actually, it's been eight years. Last interview you did was March 12, 2002. So I guess on the subject of time, I'm a little screwed up myself. I, I don't know. Was it that long ago? Was it really that long ago? In a moment, Dr. Anderson and time travel continue. Well, all right. Uh, welcome back. Once again, uh, my guest is Dr. David Anderson. Bear in mind, he is on a secure satellite line. Uh, not that there's anything particularly secure about, obviously, what we're doing right now. It's being broadcast worldwide. But the facility in which he's located, somewhere in New Mexico, not saying just where, is uh, it actually doesn't have any landline phones, but uh, just the secure lines. Understandably so. Uh, so, Dr. Anderson, welcome back. Thank you, Art. You were going to um, articulate some of the possible downsides, hazards of um, movement in time or, or time-controlled technology. What are you worried about, Doctor? Well, the first is in, in what we um, – many people um, have not had the benefit of the experiences we've had to understand and to see and observe what the true nature of time, its relationship with space, and how manipulating it can have different types of effects. And a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the issues really begin to fall not on the uh, scientific side, but on the moral and ethical side. By experimenting in time and exercising time control technologies, we actually run the risk of affecting changes in our actual reality. Um, and I, I think, and that means not just affecting a historical timeline, but affecting the existence of, 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 a, of a person, of an organization, of a country. Um, do we, 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 these changes uh, are being executed, maybe on a smaller scale right now, but they're being executed without the consideration and the moral, moral and ethical thought about what is the impact, the ripple effect that, exercising time could have on on individuals 
on countries, on governments, even on the human race, even on the fabric. I won't go so far as to say the fabric reality because that sounds too dramatic. But we've seen before historically that even with the greatest intentions, um, the human race has the ability to take new technology and apply it in dangerous dangerous ways. a, A couple ways, and one of the great challenges is with this technology, it would be fine if the technology was out in the open, but uh, the agencies involved in this, whether they be government, um, uh, private groups, special interest groups, they really don't want it to become public. But what you have now is a race uh, for weapons development. Um, there are a lot of governments who look at this and they talk about the benefits, and a lot of agencies talk about it, but they talk about the need to develop uh, time control technology into secret super weapons. Uh, there's a desire, and, and, and that's natural. Uh, Art and, and any interest, any any listener who would be surprised by that, I would say I would be shocked because I, I've had the be- benefit of reading a lot of books. I've been to military warfare college, uh, but the fundamental premise of 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 winning at warfare, and that's the goal of countries, is to survive first and then to prosper. That's the fundamental goal of any country on this planet, um, is to survive and prosper. Um, and successful strategies show that you have to keep technology secret as an advantage. And so we see governments racing for weapons development. And essentially, uh, they do it under the cloak of national security, um, but there's a short-sightedness to it. And, and what I worry about... Um, and, and maybe this will come off as dramatic, and I hope it does because I want to shock your listeners into reading more, whether it's with us or anyone else, is what we may be preparing for. I'm sorry, I'll take the maybe out. What these governments are preparing for, in my mind, from the inside out, looking at it, can only be described as preparing for the first great time war that this planet could see. And the effects that could have on a small scale implementing a, a ripple effect that has small ripple effect that has dire consequences or even risks um, destroying different aspects of historical timelines on this planet are, are, are very severe. And, and, and this is why, again, I'm on a soapbox a little bit, my apologies, is that I would, I would encourage your listeners, please read, please talk to people, please demand disclosure. It's the only way it's going to happen, and we're going to be able to manage prudently this technology. The first great time war. Um, I can imagine all kinds of ways that that could occur. For example, uh, let's take the case of Iran, which seems to be uh, a thorn in our side at this moment in history. I suppose a government might have an interest in going back to, for example, the time of the Shah or the end of the time of the Shah and replacing uh, the, the current group with a new, more pro-Western group than presently exists in Iran. That kind of thing, is that what you're referring to? Absolutely. And I think um, those that are in control of time-controlled technologies are, are working on countermeasures. What they want to see is these countries not succeed in setting this up because literally you have the ability to potentially re-engineer um, a historical um, historical events. And a lot of people will talk, will, will say, hey, Dave, what about parallel universes? i got to tell you, Art, um, <clears throat> it's a very complicated discussion for radio in this short amount of time we have. But what we see, and a lot of it's based upon the great work of uh, John Archibald Wheeler, who, regrettably, he was a friend of mine and a colleague. He passed away last year or two years ago, um, is that 
this concept of going back and re-engineering a historical timeline and having it branch off into another parallel universe so we can feel warm and fuzzy that our timeline stays intact. Um, what we're seeing from observations in the lab is that that is... Not true. Probably not true. Probably All right. Uh, true. Uh, Dr. Kaku, for example, has suggested the idea of... Well, if you were to go back and uh, um, do a paradox, kill your father, your grandfather, whatever, instead of blinking out at that instant, another universe would fork off uh, and there would simply be a different unfolding uh, reality so that there would not be a paradox causing, uh, to use the movie term, a time quake and God knows what in the future. And you're saying... Uh, and, and again, that's only a theory on on the part of uh, Dr. Kaku. You're saying that's not true, that a paradox um, done in the past is going to definitely have a an effect and possibly a bad one or possibly a good one, I suppose, on the future. There's not going to be any forking off. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and Art, I can't remember actually if it was your quote or my quote, but um, I do remember us discussing at one time on the radio is that paradoxes are simply places where our rational minds bump into their own limitations. And it's so true of this subject. Uh, moving through time is like moving through distance. Um, say you're, you're in your, you're in your um, front yard and you walk across the yard disturbing the grass and you come back. Um, it's no different in time. If you move backwards in time, you disturb it. You move forward, you disturb it. But when we talk about it's different moving through a dimension of space. Um, when you move through time, you disturb it, um, and you can move back, but the, distur- the, 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 the perturbations that you've made in that timeline and the effect you've had on reality are there. So we actually are, are actually preparing to write a paper that we hope to publish before the end of this year um, that actually provides a, um, a theoretical argument and even backed up by some experimental data about the fact that um, parallel universes, as they're labeled, I want to be careful because when we talk about hyperspaces, um, and uh, that's one of the great work by Dr. Kaku that I absolutely love, um, we do believe in hyperspaces and what we see in the lab, but the concept of parallel universes is that we can go back, affect a change in time, and have it branch off so our original timeline is protected. It's just our minds doing what they do. I mean, the human mind's job is to is to rationalize what it hears and perceives uh, with its own belief systems. And we don't want to believe. And it goes back to what I said before, is we do not see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And we are, we are products of our biological and cultural evolution, and we look at space a certain way and we look at time a certain way. We forget that that's a cultural issue. Um, there are cultures on this planet that have no concept of time. They have no past, present, and future in their language. Uh, mm-hmm. It's because they evolved that way. Uh, so we, we have to challenge ourselves. And this is why I mentioned John, John Archibald Wheeler. Uh, two of my favorite books are Edwin Abbott's Flatland and John Archibald Wheeler and Edwin Taylor's book called Space Times Physics. And in Space Time Physics, um, this book is just phenomenal. I, I frankly think it's one of the greatest works on space-time physics in the entire last century. And if you read it closely and carefully, uh, uh, Dr. Wheeler was trying to make a point about the fact that 
uh, trying to overcome the barriers through his story about the parable of these uh, uh, day people and night people. But essentially what he's making an argument is that if you stop, just hypothetically, stop treating time, what you're seeing on your wristwatch in seconds, minutes, and hours, and the way you believe it, put away your cultural and biological beliefs about time, just for a moment as an experiment, and you convert time to meters. Convert your wristwatch so it measures meters instead of seconds, using the speed of light not as a sacred um, constant of nature, but just as a conversion factor. What happens all of a sudden is this complex, wor complex world of space-time physics art boils down to algebra. And we, we do this. We spend time with college students all around the world trying to get the light bulb to go on. If you treat watch, the, the, the time on your watch in meters, hypothetically, just for a moment, and you look at the results and what's called the invariance of the space-time interval, space-time and its relationship boils down to basic algebra and a Pythagorean's theorem. That's it. And once you understand that, and this is one of the challenges with, um, we talk about paradoxes being the place where our rational minds bump into our own limitations. Um, when we can't visualize something, we want to dismiss it or categorize it. When you visualize it, that's when the true discovery occurs. And that's what I liked about Dr. Wheeler's book, um, uh, is that he helped people visualize, those few who read it and really got his message, what this relationship between space and time was. And once you have that awareness, that awakening as a scientist, everything else just becomes something you can see and feel and touch, not just this abstract world of complex mathematics. Well, I'm sure you understand, Doctor, that there are several people out there at this very moment, perhaps millions, unable to visualize what you're talking about tonight and uh, probably dismissing it and going, oh, come on. And, and by the way, just for the sake of accuracy, Shirley in uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, is she correct? Was the last interview March 12, 2002? That's correct. Maybe that five years was in a parallel universe or an alternate <laughs> timeline, Art. but that is correct. Shirley is correct. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, so Dr. Anderson has done time travel folks if you're just joining the show eight years ago we were doing uh we did a series of interviews i forget i don't know it was three or four or something like that um but at that time you were doing things like putting clocks in this time field that you've created uh and actually observing the change in in time and then you use some more mechanical clocks um at that time you were not doing living organisms uh, but you've done plants and I, I guess now I've got to move ahead and ask you, in this last eight years, have you begun, have you used living organisms, mammals? Uh, the, the short answer to that is yes, without going into a lot of detail, yes. All the, um, what I want to say, all the restrictions are off. Um, the reason we had, um, and, uh, and honestly, I didn't know at the time, but other agencies also we're having similar problems around the world who are doing work independent of us, is um, we had problems with the boundary layer. And we were talking about the, the radiation effects of frequencies being Dopplered up, up, upwards into dangerous radiation levels. Um, we've overcome that problem as well as other institutes have, and, and now they're very active with... Um, wait, wait, wait. Boundary, boundary levels, what are those? Oh. I'm sorry, I just referenced one of our last shows together, um, and I, that's not fair to your listeners. Uh, in, in, our, in our first and second time warp generation time warp field generators, we could, could create the spherical field that accelerated or decelerated time rates in the center of the field. But the challenge was 
as you moved across the boundary layer of that field where the time rates were accelerated to where the time rates, let's call them for the moment, were normal, um, we had um, very strange effects. So as we move things in or out of the field through that boundary layer um, on the border of the field, uh, very bad things would happen to living organisms. They would, for example, die, which is not a good thing. Okay. Uh, how does one get? How did one get past that problem? Uh, it was an issue. It was. It was more of an issue of, of learning, understanding the nature of, of the time warp field. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, when we hit our third generation, we actually um, found some points of stability to control the boundary layer, and that was one of the reasons why um, we spent uh, developed a five-year plan. We hoped it would have been three years, but it turned out to be a five-year plan to refine the technology uh, to eliminate that. And frankly, today we feel very confidently that uh, we finally uh, completely overcome that and have moved on to other areas of uh, application and research. All right. Uh, Professor, uh, you you mentioned time warp field. Okay. Um, is there any way that you can give us a basic understanding of how this field is created, what it is... Uh, what it what it consists of, um, you know, if you go back to some of the early science fiction, uh, the Philadelphia Experiment, for example, there were it was electromagnetism, it was rotating uh, RF fields, that sort of thing. Can you give us an idea, a rough idea, even just a rough idea of the technology involved in creating the field? Absolutely, yes. Uh, when we first, when we last spoke. Uh, we were, we were using a, um, in the field chamber itself, where we generated these time warp fields, we're using a chemical reagent, rotating electromagnetic fields and high-energy lasers to excite the field. And, 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 and art at the time, we actually thought, okay, it's that, and we need to understand a little bit more about it. But what we've actually learned, and it's been the foundation for some recent um, patents on the time reactor technology we have, is that what we've actually done is created a path, and here where I'll use the word, through hyperspace, and maybe just a slight, a slight little distraction. We were always puzzled. How could we create these fields of containable, closed time-like curves at such a low energy level? And we even talked on our show about one of the things that we were trying to learn about last time was we seem to find sources of power in the field that are much higher than the input power that we're putting into it, which violates the laws of physics, which we do believe in uh, quite highly. What it turns out to be, is um, what is now the foundation of, of what we call our time reactors. And essentially, there's a word in physics. It's, it's called inertial frame dragging. Um, it's, it's something that was theoretical um, uh, that we had proposed, other people had. It's now been proven, uh, and it's also predicted by Einstein's special theory of relativity, that when you have a mass, a, 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 like a planet, rotating in space-time, it actually twists space-time around it. Um, right. And if I could say it, it twists time, and let's make it very simple. Let's call it a twist space-time like a string. We've all seen it in science fiction movies or in documentaries. When you see the Earth kind of sunk into a fabric and you see those curved lines going into the Earth, every now and then you see them twisted around the Earth. That rotating the Earth generates inertial frame dragging. And what we found out, our time where field generators were doing, were essentially tapping into the potential energy. Think about that twist in space-time like a spring. No different than winding a spring in a clock. Uh, you, 
basically what you've done is you have a great amount of stored potential energy in that spring. So we weren't creating the energy. All we were doing was coupling the potential energy across two areas or two points that were separated by curved space-time. So it was that spring or that inertial frame-dragging effect that we were taking the potential energy from, and that's what we learned. Uh, we actually discovered that, I think it was right about back in uh, uh, 2005. And since then, it's just been absolutely remarkable what we've been able to learn about, what we've been observing, and to build upon it. All right. What, what Dr. Kaku and other theoretical physicists have said is that they believe that time travel one day, their words, may be possible. It would take, they say, an enormous amount of energy, energy that we wouldn't even have available on this planet at the moment. What you're telling us is that in the process of the technology that you've discovered for time travel, um, you have tapped into an existent energy that's out there right now that apparently uh, physicists, for the most part, are not, not aware of. So you, you have the energy, but it's, it's not something you're, you're personally generating. It's something you're able to tap into. Is that a crude way to put it? Uh, that's correct, uh, and I'd like to come back and make one clarification. You said that physicists aren't aware of. I'd like to come back and make a comment on that if I could. But the answer is yes, absolutely. All right, it's all right, Doctor, hold it right there. The clock in in the linear time world won't let us do anything else. From Manila in the Philippines, I'm Art Bell. All the way from Manila in the Philippines, uh, this is indeed Coast to Coast AM. And I am Art Bell for, I think, probably George. I'm not really sure. It's kind of a, a rotating deal on Sunday evenings. My guest is incredible. He's uh, Professor uh, David Anderson. We're talking about <laughs> we're talking about time travel. He's, uh, well, eight years ago when we did the interview, he had accomplished time travel. Um, now we've come quite a long distance from that point. Uh, other countries are doing it, says Dr. Anderson. Uh, not only that, but uh, at that, that earlier time, it was just uh, inorganic matter that was traveling, clocks, that sort of thing. Now, mammals have traveled in time. Now we're talking about things like time wars and, uh, oh my God, what a, what a program this is. I hope you're listening very carefully and I'm, I'm trying. I'm not getting all of it, uh, but I'm getting most of it. So, um, we'll continue and try to understand more of how this is being done with Dr. David Anderson in a moment. Professor, you said other physicists, um, are aware of this to, to some degree and, uh, Obviously, governments are, and I, I would imagine you've had a number of visits from um, from our government. Um, I, it's hard to even know where to start in this category. What uh, sort of interaction have you had with our or any government? Well, as I mentioned, uh, we've been quite active with uh, governments in Japan and in India. Uh, we've had have had meetings with the. Uh, uh, different government agencies in China. We actually have uh, one coming up in Russia, which I'm hopeful we can break down some barriers and find ways to uh, collaborate on some either the moral ethical issues or the technology side. Um, and of course, uh, we've had had some dealings with governments here, which is also one of the challenges. Um, uh, and uh, maybe uh, spinning off of this. It's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be on your show, because there's a message I'd like to get out to your listeners, 
is that when you look at this time control technology, uh, uh, the influence of government is profound. Uh, any new breakthrough like this that has a tremendous um, military applications or commercial prospects, uh, it really attracts tremendous interest and investment for both the private sector and enterprise as well as governments. And I can't say this with enough emphasis. Uh, I wish I could be sitting in front of every one of your listeners now. One cannot underestimate the financial aspirations and the power of large business, and more so the political and economical aspirations and the power of governments. Uh, the range of technological possibilities now are so enormous with this time technologies that the only limitations are, um, as you started to imply, are, are the, the, the limits of our imagination, or maybe even more so the limits of our insufficient imagination. We've acquired so much knowledge and power with this time technology that it places us in a critical position. And I'd say it's a critical position unlike any that has occurred in history on this planet. Um, if, we, if we look at human ethics uh, and we look at our history, um, and we look at the, the, the philosophical basis underlying all that, there's a clear recognition that says the greater in knowledge and power uh, we have, the greater the need for moral responsibility uh, to serve as a foundation to guide it. In art, until recently, we could look at our, our, our planet, and we could say um, that until recently, this has been highly affected, but only barely. I mean, we, we've danced on technologies and almost destroyed ourselves. But for the first time, the human capacity, well, for the past, the human capacity for moral reasoning has kept pace with the developments in human knowledge and its capacities. We haven't destroyed ourselves yet. But with this error, and error that we're going into with time control technology and the way it's being played with now and exercise around the world, the gap between the moral reasoning of these governments and our technological capacities has reached a critical point. And I could give you 40 or 50 reasons why governments, I literally could, 40 or 50 reasons why they would not want this to be disclosed. Um, uh, but there, it's being kept secret. There are physicists, there are scientists who are very active in that, but as far from the government and the private interest perspective, they will uh, never release it. But in my mind, and as well as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of a lot of physicist friends of mine, the scientific community is split on those on the inside of this. Um, half of us feel probably that transparency is the only way um, that we're going to guide the moral and ethical application of this technology. But art is going to require something that's never been done on this planet before. Um, we're going to have to knock down all the political barriers, all the religious barriers, and to look at this issue as one human race on this planet. Good luck with that. Uh, Lynn in St. Louis, Missouri, has a question I think will help clarify things for some people. Art, please ask Dr. Anderson, are you able to, we'll do these one at a time, are you able to interact with the past or are you simply an observer? I guess the answer to that is you're able to interact. You've made that quite clear. Yes, both. Are you able to change events? Yes, it is possible. It, it is very possible to change events. Um, the only thing that would be different, uh, thank you for the question, by the way, to your listener. Uh, the only thing that would be different than what's commonly understood, a lot of people feel changing events creates paradoxes. What we're seeing um, is paradoxes. Uh, that's a limitation in the way we look at 
the science um, or the observations we see. The reality is, is that walking through your flower bed and walking back again, you've changed that, and it's no different than walking through time. When you walk through time, you change. When you walk back, it doesn't erase itself. It doesn't create paradox. You've effectively changed and had a ripple effect that has touched other parts of this reality, which is one dynamic web of information and energy, which means you might have introduced changes that have no effect at all. They're insignificant, minor, completely not observable, or you may have created a ripple effect that could drastically change the course of this planet and human race. God. Um, it's not all that frequent that you hear a scientist call for controls of the technology that he's working on, whether it be um, uh, genetic work um, or, you know, any other uh, any other leading edge field right now. Scientists are loath to call for any sort of moral ethical controls on what they're doing. So it is unusual to hear that, Doctor, and I, I can only assume that what you've seen and what you know uh, has pushed you to the point of, of actually publicly calling for controls in this area, yes? Yes, I, I think um, I, I think this technology, and it's not just me, Art, I just happen to be lucky and fortunate to be on your show. Um, this technology, we feel, has exceeded the ability, at this time at least, of, let's call it our leaders or the people who are in control of the technology, to apply moral reasoning to it. Um, we have some very serious questions to answer. What do we do with this knowledge? How do we handle it? Who should have access to it, uh, given its social and personal implications in relation to literally anything, anyone, even the entire planet? I mean, these are just a few of the questions uh, uh, that are raised. And, and we feel that, um, many of my colleagues feel, that this uh, burden does need to lie on the scientific community. We have to carry a big part of that. Have you sent a human into the past? We have, we have, exper- we have, um, <laughs> and I don't think we're the only one who's done it. And I know this will create a lot of a lot of stir because I don't want it to be the focus of this show. Uh, I really don't want it to be because transparency and the need for support from your listeners is so important. Um, the The short answer is yes. We have exposed humans to accelerated and uh, retarded rates of time. Absolutely, yes. All right. So in in the, the spirit of uh, time travel movies, is it the kind of deal where you, you sit in a chamber or a chair or something that uh, where you're exposed to this field and then the change begins when you when you turn all this on? Uh, it, it, it's inside a field. Um, uh, the, the most dramatic part of this is uh, actually the, the excitement or the startup of a, of a time warp field. That's, it's pretty spectacular to see. Um, with regards to the experience of being exposed to accelerated or decelerated time rates, um, the, um, the effect of the people observing the experiment is pretty bland and benign. Um, but we have tremendous, um, amazing uh, uh, what I want to say, experiences reported by the people who have been exposed uh, to these fields. Uh, some of them uh, would claim to have very, very spiritual um, uh, experiences. Some of them uh, would report seeing uh, spectacular phenomenon as they're uh, in that transition period. Um, 
all, all range of spectrum. But it, it's such a um, uh, the human mind is so unusual uh, when it's exposed to something so foreign. Uh, it's hard to interpret that. It's really not our area of expertise, even though we're trying to add that competency now, kind of All the right. human factors of being exposed to uh, time warp fields. All right, let me try this. Um, if you're, and you say, you claim you have already done this, a uh, human in both directions, if a human were, let, let's stick with the past for a moment, uh, To if a human were sent into the past, is that human uh, restricted to staying within the time warp? In other words, once in the past, whether it be a minute or a year or 500 years, can you then walk out of the field and interact with that time that you're now in? Uh, and then, and then, of course, there's the getting back question. So um, uh, just one clarification. Uh, what I am talking about is time control, and I'm being very careful about the words time control versus time travel. Have we exposed humans to moving them forward and backwards in time? Yes, on a, on a scale that's smaller, uh, but we've done it. Uh, we're not talking about sending a human back 40, 50 years, but the technology is not so far away from doing that. Uh, what we are talking about is, yes, a person moving backwards in time, being able to step out of the field and to interact. And, and that's what, um, as you mentioned, Dr. Kako had mentioned about closed time-like curves. Um, this is something we've known for a long time. The German mathematician Kurt Gödel in the late 1940s um, uh, wrote, demonstrated on paper how um, the creation of closed time-like curves didn't um, violate the laws of our math and mathematics and physics. Frank Tipler in 1965 wrote uh, a paper about how to create closed time-like curves that has now become known as a Tipler cylinder. Uh, Dr. Kaku also talked, I believe, about uh, cosmic strings um, and time warp fields. These are things that collect closed time-like curves. So time literally are, actually loops back on itself, even into its own past, and it, and it happens at sub-light speed. Uh, so it's one way to travel backwards in time without traveling faster than the speed of light. And when you emerge from that field, um, as a person in the middle of the experiment, yes, you've moved backwards in time. Um. All right, you actually hold patents for what you call a time reactor design. Uh, and, and one more time for me, because I, I'm trying to understand this. Um, you, you talk about frame dragging uh, as a source of energy. So the machinery, the, the actual machinery, I, I know I'm going to run into trouble here because you're not going to want to answer these questions, but you, you said electromagnetic fields are created. Are you using a sm relatively small amounts of energy to access all of this, or does it take a considerable amount of energy? That's uh, actually, um, it, relatively speaking, it's a very small amount of energy. It might be considered to be uh, on, a, on a pretty moderate to large scale based upon typical usage of power. Uh, but let me let me tell let me give a little analogy. Um, say I ask one of your listeners, um, and being that I'm from um, uh, or I spend quite a bit of time in upstate New York. Um, uh, let's say I challenge one of your listeners uh, to go over um, <clears throat> on the Great Lakes and to build a, I want him to build a hydroelectric plant. So um, one way to do that is simply to, um, okay, so let's build a big structure uh, with a big ramp that goes up, say, several you know, hundred meters up into the sky, ramps down. We'll get a bunch of pumps. We'll pump water up to the top of the ramp. 
We'll let the water flow down the ramp at the bottom. We'll spin the turbines and generate the electricity. That's one way to do it. It takes a tremendous amount of power to pump that water to the top. But in the case, but the smart way to do it would be, wait a minute, why don't we just use Niagara Falls? There's waterfalls there. Why not just use the potential energy that exists in nature? And, and, and that's what we're doing. With We didn't realize we were doing it initially um, with time warp fields, but that's exactly the way they work. Um, we're using the potential energy that's stored in, like in a spring in twisted space-time around the Earth. All we're doing, like a battery, is, is reaching, a, a, and I'm going to say through hyperspace, to two points to couple the energy and to release the natural energy. So with a small amount of input power, we get tremendous power out, which creates one problem with clean power generation, which you know there's a lot of, um, I don't want to sound so play into so many conspiracies, but there are a lot of special interest groups that have a lot of reasons why they'd like not to see clean energy. But what's also fascinating, Art, it takes a tremendous amount of power to curve space-time. And when we are able to tap into that twisted space-time and release the energy in that spring and to concentrate it in an area, something else happens. Not only do we get a large surge of energy, but there's a gradual curve in space-time. This twist in space-time is measured in a very small amount around the Earth. It's measured in arc seconds, which is extremely small. But by bridging it, we actually condense that curved space-time instead of across a much wider part of space into a concentrated point. And, that's, and what we get is tremendous levels of closed time-like curves. Uh, so it's not just the power generation, it's the generation of powerful fields of closed time-like curves using energy that exists in nature. And uh, it's sometimes amazing to us that more people haven't really looked at this as a source of potential energy. We looked at wind, we looked at sun, we looked at the tides, we looked at water. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of energy surrounding this planet on a scale that dwarfs what we generate in power uh, generation facilities today. Well, that was a critically important question. Without the power, uh, as you've articulated, uh, coming from some other source, it just wouldn't have been possible. So you've answered that question. Obviously, that opens the door. If there's energy out there that can be tapped into and more out than in, as you put it, then that's a potential free energy source. And that's a reason why a lot of people would come after you. Doctor, um, you began this work to some degree in the Air Force. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Actually, um, I was, uh, I was a, a scientist stationed uh, working for Air Force Systems Commands at, at Edwards Air Force Base uh, in the Mojave Desert, and I was very active in uh, um, uh, eventually what became uh, the study and the um, developing of mathematical models for high-speed orb- orbital and space vehicles. And uh, that's how I accidentally come into this, actually. It was, uh, we were working, at, create, I was creating a model using, it was an 11-dimensional Kalman filter, um, and saw some really amazing um, information coming out of the model that we created. Uh, and actually, it's kind of interesting, uh, I, I, I so much wanted to continue the work in the Air Force, but we had a specific mission. Uh, we were looking at high-speed orbital vehicles and space vehicles. That was the mission. I'd come across something that I wanted to explore further, but at the time, or at least until it took quite a time, the Air Force didn't realize uh, what we were trying or what I was trying to communicate to them. Um, I really wish I could have continued in the Air Force, but um, was unable to. So, in other words, uh, at the time you left 
the Air Force. They really weren't aware of the the additional discoveries that you had made. Yeah, I think at the time they thought I was a little bit crazy, but what was actually interesting, <laughs> um, um, and, and that's normal in this field, as, as you say, you know, people chuckle at things. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, it was interesting. Two weeks prior, I'd already uh, packed up all my belongings. I'd shipped them back home. Um, I had my going away party. I was taken off of active duty. I was waiting for my flight. And two weeks before, the Air Force denied my separation. I'd completed my contract. They denied it. I actually had to go to uh, Senator Rockefeller in West Virginia and request a congressional inquiry to get released because by that time, I was two weeks away. I'd already set the groundwork for setting up the research center and getting that started. And I wanted to move forward, so I actually had to go to a congressional inquiry. But I think Air Force Systems Command didn't realize uh, what I was alluding to until just weeks, maybe about two or three weeks prior to my separation. So they attempted to stop it. They actually stopped your set or tried to stop your separation. Are they aware now of what you have done? Yes. I mean, different groups, different different individuals, and different aspects of, of, of the military, yes. Uh, but, yeah, I wouldn't say they attempted to stop. They did stop. I, I, when I petitioned Senator Rockefeller, it took, um, I think, almost eight or nine months to process my separation. So the Air Force held on to me for a while. But, um, And I, I really appreciated my work. The Air Force gave me, uh, the United States Air Force gave me access to technology and projects and opportunities I couldn't have got anywhere else. So I'm very grateful. I don't want that to be a negative comment. All right. No, it isn't. All right, Dr. Anderson, hold tight right there. This is Dr. David Anderson. We're talking about time control technology. I'm Art Bell. Here I am indeed, and this is just a total mind blower of a show. Uh, That was a good piece of bumper music for this. Uh, We're talking about time control technology. We're talking about time travel, actually. And uh, Dr. David Anderson was on the program eight years ago. At that time, he'd done early time travel. Bear in mind, as he speaks with us this night, he's somewhere in New Mexico from a lab, and he's using a secure sat line. So that's what you're hearing. If the audio doesn't sound quite right, he's on a secure sat line. There are no uh, wired phones at uh, his location for understandable reasons, although there's obviously nothing at all secure about what we're doing tonight. Nor are we getting all of the information. That's simply not possible. What Dr. Anderson is working on is... <laughs> it is it is so far out there that I guess as a listener, you're either going to go, oh my God, or you're going to just dismiss all of this. I don't know how you're going to react to it. But judging from the... Um, the fast blast that I'm getting, you're actually reacting quite well with the really lucid questions. And I'll I'll try and get to some of those as we continue with Dr. Anderson in a moment. Once again, Dr. David Anderson, Dr. Um, Bill in Bloomington, Indiana, asks the following. uh, How is time travel affected by the fact that the Earth's solar system, the galaxy, they're all moving in space. In other words, an hour ago, the Earth was somewhere else. Does time travel equal space travel, or do you, you end up you know, floating in space? Well, uh, it's a great question. It's been portrayed, uh, thank you for the question, uh, so many different ways in, in movies. 
when when you're using um, it's a good question when you're using technologies that involve closed time like curves you're in a field where time is looping back on itself so essentially you're staying in the field and moving with that field of closed time like curves there's a lot of questions and i understand where the question is coming if you had a hypothetical technology that did not use a field of closed time like curves and they traveled say back 10 minutes in time well the, the earth is you know hurling through space at, at this tremendous speed, you're going to materialize in the uh, empty space. In the case of uh, any type of time control technology, no matter what it is uh, that's using closed time-like curves, you are going to uh, experience that transition through time within the field, so you're moving with the field itself. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a number of moral, ethical uh problems associated with this technology, and I can certainly understand them. If you were the one testifying before some sort of Senate or Congressional Committee, what limits uh, at this point, with your knowledge, uh, what caveats would you impose on the use of this technology worldwide? Oh, it's a, it's a good question. Um, we have to First, I'd remind everybody that we have to understand that the growing options we have with time control technology and, and science could very well affect our concept of what it means to be human. We have to think about the impact of what we're talking about with this new technology. Uh, so it's conceivable. If the human race decides to use this newly found knowledge and, and technology skillfully, it could really help foster a greater sense of affinity and maybe even unity uh, uh, with each other and life as a whole, um, being that we're all part of the same dynamic web of information and energy. Uh, but I would say many people are becoming worried by the short and long-term consequences of its application. Uh, I feel part of the solution um, is that we have to close this gulf uh, that separates the scientific community and the general public, uh, that frankly, in the most part, not the only part, but the most part, is caused by the lack of transparency in governments and organizations developing time control technology. I feel, though, our, we have to, as scientists, the onus should be on us in the scientific community. We have to demonstrate that there are no long-term negative consequences in the application of the technology. We have to adopt complete transparency on all the possible implications that uh, time control technology could have for individuals, the human race, and reality. And we have to provide something that's never been done before, transparency to every detail of its actual use. And if, given the I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, do you honestly expect governments uh, to, to adhere to that kind of uh, rigid rule? Uh, I mean, governments are going to be using this immediately for uh, political warfare reasons and, you know, imposing the kind of controls that you're talking about just it's not going to work with government they're not they're not ready for it we're not ready for it doctor well i would say that um uh i'd have to say it's too late for the question uh, <laughs> i guess so it's too late it's too late art uh and i i think this is what i want people to understand and it has nothing to do with the anderson institute and our work over the last 20 years it, given the tremendous pace of development in time control science we have to find a way. It's urgent to refine our capacity for moral reasoning so we're equipped to address all the challenges, the moral challenges that this new situation brings. We can't wait for 
like we always have as a race inhabiting this planet for a series of responses to emerge in an organic way. Uh, we have to confront the reality of our potential future and past and tackle the problems. And we have to do something we haven't done before. Uh, it's a great question you ask, and, but the question's too late. We now have to, have to do something if we want to avoid, avoid that great time war and the dangerous repercussions and catastrophe, potential catastrophes this technology could have on this planet and the people of this world, we need to examine these questions and this problem from the perspective of global ethics that is grounded in a recognition of fundamental human values that transcends religions and science. We can't look at it in terms of government borders, political borders, scientific borders, religious borders. Uh, we need, first, we need an educate. You asked me what to do. Uh, we must be more critically aware of what we're developing, what we're applying, and why. We have to have a higher level of collective effort than what we've ever seen yet on this planet. We need to have educational imperatives that must be directed to scientists as well as all people. Um, given that the stakes for the world are so high, the decisions about the course of research, what do we do with the knowledge, how do we apply the technology, can't be left in the hands of scientists. It can't be left in the hands of business interests. It can't be left in the hands of government officials. We need to develop solutions um, with a much higher public involvement, whether through debate, through media, through public consultation, or the actions of grassroots pressure groups. Perhaps we need a Pandora. I heard you talking about that the other day on your show. But, but, yes. but that's what we need to establish. The challenges are so great, and the dangers for the misuse of technology are so global. Um, we need a collective moral compass transcending all these artificial lines we create as a single, not just a single human race inhabiting this planet. One thing we've learned from our science art and, and from the work we've been doing and what we've learned from everyone, no exceptions, every one of the other agencies we've touched with, regardless of how far they let us to see inside their work, is that what this shows is that we do live in a world, a dynamic web of information and energy where everything is connected to everything, everyone, all the time. Um, and and we, we see this now. We know this now. Um, but we need to... We, we need to advance our capacity for moral reasoning as a civilization inhabiting this planet, or the consequences could be very grave. Well, I hate to be a pessimist, but if we need everything that you just described, we're doomed. Uh, which I've, I've always sort of thought anyway. Um, I, I just don't oh, see... Oh, art, art, no, no. <laughs> I, I honestly don't see how governments and people can come together with the kind of transparency that you're talking about, knowing the way we are um, is the way we are, and it's just not going to happen. All of human history is is on my side in this. Uh, so I guess, but on the other hand, well, maybe it's, it's such a powerful technology that uh, aren't you taking a terrible chance by even coming on the air tonight and, and talking about the advances since we last spoke. Isn't it a terrible risk? Art, it's a, uh, wow, you just touched on what I'll say is a, uh, a very deeply personal issue for me. Um, yes. I, I can't tell you the, um, not just myself, but people who are around the work we do. And I've seen it in other areas too, even though through the cultural gaps, you know, our relationships with other agencies sometimes are a little more formal but where we've got personal, um, personally, I can tell you from my own perspective, the amount of loss I've had um, 
has been severe to be involved in this work. Um, honestly, I don't think there, uh, and, and I won't go into details on the show, I've lost so much as a result of pursuing this work that I don't think it could ever get any worse. So for me, um, um, I'm not concerned about that. I do feel an ethical responsibility to a lot of members of my team, and I have a lot of empathy for people in other agencies doing work. But I tell you, Art, and I, I can't underline it enough, a person cannot underestimate the financial aspirations and power of the large businesses who want this technology and the political and economical and military aspirations and the power of governments. Uh, they're so strong. Um, forgetting the fact that um, uh, the potential energy power generation capabilities we're talking about, then you bring in the special interest groups and the oil lobbyists. Uh, you can understand why we stay a little bit private and why to build, to expand our network, um, we went, uh, if you will, dark for a period of time, not to sound so clandestine, but that's what we did. Well, clearly you did. You've been um, away from the public eye for eight years, and I, I imagine even kind of at a private level, you've been more or less disappeared for eight years. I, here's another question for you. Uh, with respect to time travel to the future, is it possible to simply observe uh and if so you know the world as is at a very very critical juncture i suppose you say that at any moment in history but truly it seems as though right now we're at a very critical juncture uh wars looming there's always there are always wars but uh religious differences that you know drive airplanes into buildings and it's just a pretty rough time all the way around nuclear proliferation um going at a, a fa very fast clip. Um, have you looked into the future with respect to, to time control technology itself or the world situation, period? Are you able to look into the future very far and see what's ahead for us, Doctor? Well, uh, the short answer to that is yes, uh, to, to some degree. And... Uh, there are a lot of reasons to look into the future. Uh, there's a lot of temptation to say, let's look uh, into the future and retrieve information for the future for, you know, cures for diseases like diabetes, AIDS, yes, cancer. Yes, yes. Um, viewing into the future to see see what happens. Um, uh, these are tough questions. This comes back to the moral compass. We're very mm -hmm. tempted, and on occasion. Um, um, we see the ability to send information forward and backwards in time, the ability to view um, uh, through time. And the question is how much uh, it now becomes to the question, and it's one of the things some members of our teams, and actually India's, the team in India is amazing. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but to these questions about um, do you view in time, not view in time? They're so far along on the technology. They're developing all the, the operational procedures, protocols, the regulations that guide its application. They move beyond the technology. They're developing the infrastructure and the policies and procedures around how it can be applied and used. Uh, we have a lot of temptation to look into it. Uh, we're still learning. We're, we're still kind of art in, 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 in our lab. Uh, in our labs that are spread out around the world, we're still kind of in, a, in a, a little bit of a wow state. When we realized back in 2005 that um, we were uh, uh, not generating power, but we were tapping into a naturally occurring power, um, it really kind of caught us off guard. And like before, we spent many years trying to refine um, 
uh, the boundary layer uh, issues that we had. Uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, now that we've uh, learned a little bit about where this power is coming from through using the potential energy, uh, we're now working to understand that. We're tempted to look forward and backwards in time, uh, but we're really trying to apply that same ethical and moral compass to our own operations. But I got to tell you, we, we've seen some interesting things. We have a young lab technician here who's going to publish his first scientific paper. And a lot of people are aware of many free energy uh, claims, like with uh, zero-point energy and the work of Nikolai Tesla uh, and others. Um, he's actually writing a paper that he believes they were doing maybe the same thing we are doing. We accidentally tapped into a naturally occurring potential energy. This isn't the free energy you know, speculation of of fictitious things. This, this is a potential energy that's proven to exist around the Earth in curved space-time. And what we believe, what he believes, I shouldn't say we, because this is all his inspiration, and he's done tremendous work, is that he believes that what Nikolai Tesla was tapping into uh, and many other of these uh, zero-point energy um, uh, reports are based upon tapping into uh, curved space-time, technologies that actually created, coupled the potential energy between two points uh, in space-time, through hyperspace, or through um, this space. Okay, uh, here's one for you. Uh, Dr. Anderson, as far as I know, and the audience knows, uh, you, you're the first one to tell us about all of this. Now, you've mentioned that India is perhaps even ahead of us, or ahead of yourself at the moment, uh, that China's working on this. How did time control technology proliferate? Is it a, is it a situation where... These other countries were working in parallel, doing parallel work with what you were doing, or did your technology get in their hands somehow? Uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a mix of both. I, I wish there was a very specific answer, but I would I would I would go back and make a comment. Uh, that comment would be is that this has been going on for quite amount of time. Um, uh, people talk about sending information uh, backwards in time, and we talk about projects like the NEC funding with Princeton and Dr. Yulian, Yulian Yang, Wang's work. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia, for example, was doing similar experiments to that, funded by the government uh, back in the, I want to say, the 1960s. I know that for a fact because uh, when the former Soviet, Soviet Union went through its challenges, we actually purchased at the teeth the TTRC actually purchased some of the assets of the Moscow Aviation Institute and the research they were doing in these areas. Um, so I, I think my message, um, it, it surprises me, and maybe that's part of my plea. Please understand, uh, this, uh, this technology, some of it, yes, um, uh, we have partners uh, where we share technologies, and, of course, we compartmentalize a lot. We're not as open as we'd like governments to be sometimes. So I'm slapping myself on the wrist right now for all your uh, <laughs> uh, listeners who are calling me a hypocrite. Uh, but we do feel responsibility not to protect the technology from a point of power and superiority, but from ensuring that it's not shared too widely until there's a moral compass. But many of these groups have come upon uh, their own approaches to the technology. Some have built upon, and honestly, I would say the great work done in Russia uh, back in the 1960s, uh, they've built upon that. They followed that and, and really uh, extrapolated it to wonderful levels. And other groups have come up with totally uh, radically new things that we never would have considered. Um, 
have you discovered anything at all about the nature of life and death uh, as a result of time travel? Uh, for example, one would imagine if reverse time travel can be done, which you say it can, you would be able to actually go back and talk to somebody who had passed away already. Uh, I don't know that that really tells you anything about the nature of life and death, but it's a question. Uh, the nature, the, the nature of life and death. Oh wow! Uh, what does it tell us about life? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, from every observation we have and every type of experiment and, and protocol we run in the lab, uh, we see the support of um, of the world as a as a and the reality is a web of dynamic information and energy. The other thing we see with regards to life and death is we talk about the world as a form of a dynamic web of information and energy. Uh, mm-hmm. We see um, we see it tied to entropy that that natural tend of tendency of the universe to move to disorder. Of course, we see energy, um, uh, you know, improving the organization of the universe uh, or information improving or reducing uh, that entropy. We see energy taking in the opposite direction, uh, but we see energy not disappearing. We see energy transforming. Uh, so when we talk about consciousness. Um, and this is a belief, this is an interesting conversation because we talk about this uh, when I'm with colleagues, when we're away from the formal agendas. Uh, but when we talk about the human consciousness, uh, we talk about the human consciousness being able to transcend time or this tiny little view we have of our reality. Consciousness. Right in front of All right, us. Doctor, hold it right there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but boy, what's happening to time? <laughs> from Manila in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, I'm Art Bell. Here I am. I don't often, uh, doing this program, simply get stunned. And uh, that's what this program is doing. It simply stuns me. And I, <laughs> the nature of life and death, and uh, he says information, consciousness, uh, continues to survive. And I think that answers a, a question for me anyway, um, a very important question for me. And one that I always thought was true. So I'm not surprised by the answer, but I guess I'm stunned. That's the right word. The whole thing is stunning. My guest is Dr. David Anderson. The subject is time control technology or time travel. He's doing it. He's coming to us um, on a secure line. There are no wired lines uh, at the facility he resides in at the moment. Uh, he and his workers it's somewhere in New Mexico, and that's about as much as we're going to find out about where he is. He's been out of touch with us for eight years. This is a show you're going to want to archive and listen to very carefully. Dr. David Anderson, back in a moment. Well, all right. Doug from Cardiff, California, I'm trying to get these in, asks, Doctor, uh, the time travel is fascinating. However, the tapping into, in quotes, zero-point energy is equally astounding. Please clarify how... Viable is the zero-point technology for general widespread use. Is this the energy game-changer that we've all been waiting for? Well, I, I, I think, uh, thank you for the question, listener, and uh, I think there is a tremendous potential. Uh, for those who are interested, by the way, uh, we did publish uh, one of our, our patent applications online. It's available on the website, pretty easy to find. Uh, it outlines the basic principles behind a time reactor. Our hope is other people will take this and build upon it, find even better ways to tap into the potential energy. And, Art, could you repeat the question for me again? My apologies. Yes. It's late in the morning here, and I lost track. 
Oh, no. Uh, Doug says, uh, the time travel is fascinating. However, the tapping into zero-point energy is equally astounding. Please clarify, how viable is this zero-point technology for general widespread use? Is it the energy game-changer we've all been waiting for? I believe it is. Uh, first off, it, it has been done. Uh, we've replicated, uh, not replicated, we've, we've designed uh, operating systems. We actually believe other people have as well. Uh, I, I feel embarrassed to say um, I think this is what we were observing in our time, early time warp field generators, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but this technology is real. Uh, however, it will require uh, to go public. It's going to require a careful um, um, release of the technology by, by governments. And, of course, what happens then is uh, we run into uh, many uh, – and then I don't want to play the conspiracy card again – uh, but the special interest groups, again, are quite powerful. And, of course, the main motive uh, behind them controlling the technology is to preserve their economic status quo and, uh, uh, and their profitability. So we, we tend to run into a lot of barriers. Our, our hope is, is that through better transparency, we can overcome that, because while special interest groups are strong, once a technology, even if it's been hidden for many years, becomes transparent to the public, those special interest groups lose their power. And okay. so we hope it will become mainstream. With respect to uh, travel into the future, and for that matter, the past, is it malleable? In other words, if you see something in the future, is it possible to change whatever it is that you've seen? Well, there's some arguments inside. The first answer is yes. There might even be some arguments not even by interacting, just by observing, of course, you change. And the analogy I'd like to give, and I, I know it's a difficult subject, and again, I, I really urge people to read space-time physics. And by the way, it's not just for physics students and physicists. Uh, uh, half of it is a college textbook. Half of it is a, uh, an effort by the physicists who wrote it to make you think about this. But moving through time, is like moving through uh, distance. Again, you walk through your flower bed outside and you walk back. You've, you've, you've moved through space and you've affected, you've trampled some of the flowers, you've moved some to the side, you've changed it. And the same is true moving forward and backwards in time. When you move forward and you move backwards, you are affecting changes um, uh, that affect both areas, just like walking through space. I know it's a, a very difficult concept, but it really boils down to be that simple. Mm -hmm. what, what's the most interesting observation uh, that you've made in your lab regarding time itself? Uh, again, I have to say the, the most interesting observation is the emotional reaction of people who see a time warp field um, generator in an experiment <laughs> in action. Um, and even, uh, and then I'll get to a technical one. <clears throat> the second personal observation for me, very powerful is people who always contact me uh, one or two weeks later and say they can't go through life the same way. They can't look at the world the same way anymore. Everything's changed for them about every aspect of their day, uh, their days and their lives. Uh, on the technical side, the most interesting thing, um, I think it's worn off the ability to observe uh, accelerated and retarded rates of time. Believe it or not, you get really used to it. It's just part of the, you know, the, the job. Um, I think I would say the most interesting thing to me, and it gets into a very complicated topic for 
radio, but it would be the link between what we're seeing, uh, what is the actual construct at the time. We, we talk about, um, you know, our, whew, let's see if I can wrap my words just a little more succinctly, Art. Um, you know, our, 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 mind is, our mind is like a television set. I've heard this analogy so many times. The world is a dynamic web of information and energy. We're a television set and with our mind has a little tuner. And as we turn channels, we can see only a small portion of that information and energy. Um, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And the one thing that's most interesting for me, Art, coming out of our research, is what we're learning about the nature of time. Um, and our hope is actually to make some, and it would be so exciting for me, to make some contributions to string theory. Um, why we don't agree with the concept of parallel universe, the most interesting for me is is we look at the nature of time, we now begin to start understanding uh, why, from our perspective, is, is let's call it three-dimensional beings, why it appears to us that the theory of everything would be an 11-dimensional theory. Um, we begin to see that. And believe it or not, we begin to see time as a sphere. Um, and that's going to sound really abstract as well, very difficult for radio, but um, we begin to learn things about time uh, that we can visualize. And, and that's exciting for me, and that's interesting for me. Well, earlier you mentioned uh, to think of time as a measurement. Uh, in other words, uh, in... in it, it, time, as time passes, to think of it as uh, movement in meters as opposed to movement in seconds or minutes, correct? That is correct, and that is exactly what it is. And it is so simple if you can just eliminate a couple thousand years of biological and cultural evolutions, forget the fact that you see things the way you are, not the way the world is, um, and you accept that for a moment. And the physics, space-time physics, and the nature between time and space boil down to algebra that you can see and feel. Um, sorry, a little bit of too much there. No, that's all right. I, actually, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because the only way that human beings could... I mean, originally, there was, there was nothing. Before the Big Bang, there was nothing. Therefore, there was no time. Once the Big Bang occurred... There were there were objects. There was there was this planet. Then there was the moon. We could watch the moon move, and as we watched the moon move and the stars move and other planetary bodies move, we could measure. Hence, we began to understand that there was time. So, time itself is only realized by by movement. I'm not a physicist, but I can understand that from you know we. It's hard. It's all hard to put into words, uh, Professor. But well said. Well said, Art. I mean, uh, we, we 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 touched on information, energy, and, and, and the eternal consciousness. Um, in, in our minds, in my mind, sometimes the, the Big Bang was just a, a small thermal instability. That dynamic web of information and energy was there before. It's there during. It's there after, and it'll be there at the next Big Bang as well. And and that eternal consciousness will. That's that's buried within that web of information and energy um, will always be there. Will always be there. Has there been a moment in this in the development uh, of this technology all these years, Professor, when you've said to yourself, "I guess I should stop. I should, you know, this is too much. Uh, our world, our society, is obviously not ready for it. I should just bury this and go away." Well, I, I, yes. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, when we essentially went dark uh, back in 2002, uh, 
a big reason was we, we saw amazing results. We needed more resources and technologies we didn't have. We needed to expand. Uh, I was very concerned then for two things. I was very concerned about uh, employees at the research at the time research center on Long Island. I was quite concerned for their safety. I mentioned to you I've lost a lot. Not a topic I go into on the radio, but I've lost way too much. Um, but I was also concerned about the lack of a moral compass. And in all honesty, I would not have brought our work back into the public at this time if I didn't think it's too late. It's too late to keep it uh, to the side. And I would encourage, and I'm, I'm hoping, and I do believe that other colleagues in different areas of the world, totally independent of the Anderson Institute, are going to begin stepping forward talking about the work that they're doing. I, I think it's too late. The question, again, would be a question in my mind, Art, that it's a little too late now. Now, now the technology is in the hands of people, uh, some of which will be prudent. But as you mentioned, as a human race on this uh, this tiny planet, we, we haven't done a great job at knocking down those lines and 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 working as a unified, you know, um, group. And uh, we need to accomplish that. And, and now it's too late. The, the technology is in too many people's hands. It's at different levels, fortunately. Um, it, depending on which country and which agency you're speaking of, but the technology well, you, you, is there. you mentioned, uh, Professor, that India is uh, pretty far ahead in all of this. Have you had any feedback from India or those working in India on the uh, the moral ethical implications and concerns? Are they concerned as you are? I would say I would say yes. Um, these groups. Uh, uh, I think it's difficult. Uh, there's a fear in some of these groups. Depending on where you are in the world, uh, the situation could even be worse than, than, than we're in. Um, uh, I think most most people, most people that, that I associate with, my peers and my colleagues, different physicists, different scientists and engineers, they share this. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the scientific community is split. It is completely split at this time on whether or not um, this should be brought forward. Uh, personally, I feel it's too late. I think your question is a very good one. Should this have just been stopped? Should it have been, de been delayed or avoided uh, until we develop the moral and ethical reasoning as a human race and got past some of our more petty problems to manage it? Uh, but it's simply too late. And, and I think many of the colleagues I'll, I'll, I work with will realize that. And as I mentioned, this is a little bit different. Um, it's been within our, our capacity to dance along the line, say, with nuclear energy and somehow find a way to survive. I'm not saying that the verdict is out on that yet. But with time control technology, the ripple effect and the complexity of, of what it could touch and the potential catastrophe is so big that um, um, I would say that uh, uh, I just hope people do. And that's one of the reasons why we've come forward and one of the reasons why we're launching a, a big educational program to make people aware of what's not happening just with us, but with other people, and to begin arming people with information about uh, these views on time, space-time, and time control technology that they can use and ask intelligent questions to themselves as well as to put pressure on uh, their representatives and their governments wherever they are in the world to, to step forward. So there are ways that somebody could tamper, for example, with the past. Uh, you remember the butterfly effect? I don't in other words, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, wouldn't it be so easy to make a very small change that made a very gigantic change 
or do small changes remain small changes with without great effects on the future or is it possible that the butterfly effect works and you know instead of the the, the butterfly flapping its itself and and creating a little wind that becomes a a typhoon or you know however that works uh i i guess i'm asking um even small seemingly unimportant changes made in the past could they have catastrophic results for the future answer is yes i we it certainly can and um you know i said earlier and i wish i could take back the word it's on the scientific community to demonstrate that there are no long-term negative consequences in applying time control technology mm-hmm. but the real real answer is uh is that 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 as we look at a historical timeline a timeline of any kind the complex nature of the universe and this reality and events as they have occurred, will occurred, or had occurred, and how a small change could have a ripple effect like the butterfly effect is unpredictable. We do not have the mental reasoning to understand that now. It's too complex. It's beyond our capacity, yet we're willing to um, play dice and, and to do it with the hope that you know, because of these new benefits, we stand behind these shields and say, well, look at the benefits of all the great things we can do for the world. The reality is we really don't know what the impacts are of this. And we're talking about game changers for the human race um, and what it means to be human even. Uh, so we have to be very careful on, on how it's applied. And and I do agree with you. Sometimes I I, I don't know if the battle uh, can be won, but we're, we're going to do our part. And uh, we're going to request our peers and colleagues and partners to do their parts as well. Because if we can, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity for the human race to, uh, to get closer to Pandora. <laughs> and by the, way, by the way, there's a lot of people who believe that, um, is that this technology, if released in the right way, could be one of the great unif- unifiers to bring people together and knock down those borders of political, economic, and religious differences and to make the human race begin to realize um, you know, that we are connected from the, from the deep within the physics of it, but also to understand that we can no longer act independently uh, with technologies like these without having potential grave consequences. Maybe Perhaps so, Doctor. Perhaps uh, so, but uh, the development of nuclear technology uh, didn't do that, and that that was a technology uh, that is a technology that could end life on the planet. I mean, if we had a full exchange uh, back when we were having our little dispute about Cuba, for example, if we you know if that had developed into a full exchange, that would have ended humanity's place on the planet. In other words, we'd all be dead, and that's a game changer. I mean, it's a complete game changer. So if that didn't bring us together, but I suppose one could argue, well, the wall did come down and, you know, the the, the war didn't happen yet. So uh, in well, a sense, I guess it, it did it did change things, but uh, as much as they changed, they remain the same. Well, I could say something that I would not believe, but, but, but I have many friends who would say it. Well, with this uh, technology, as it continues to be refined, uh, history does become an experimental science. So maybe it's possible, um, which I don't believe it is. Uh, when I say we don't have the moral reasoning or the, 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 the understanding of the complexity to re-engineer history, 
So that 2010 or 2012 becomes the Pandora um, uh, that we all would love to be living in. Um, sorry for all the references to Avatar, but I enjoyed them the, the other night in your show. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, but, but we um, could build the ideal society. Yeah, um, we could also have Pandora's box, and it could open around 2012. A lot of people worried you know, about that. Yeah, we could destroy the human race. We could we could implement viruses, bring viruses from the past or the future into this this era. Uh, there's so many things. The ripple effects, the butterfly effect is so complex, and the, the stakes are so high. Uh, I really truly meant what I said, is that this technology, just this existence alone, uh, makes people question what it means to be human, uh, but the application of it could radically change what it means to be human. Okay. All right, when we come back from this next break, uh, I'm going to open up the phone lines and I'm going to allow the audience to ask you questions about time control technology. So um, I've sort of hogged you for this whole part of the show. If, if you'd be willing to answer questions from the audience, uh, that's what we'll do next. Is, are you uh, up for that? It would be a pleasure, Art. Okay, well, uh, it's one of those things where nearly anything goes, Doctor, so stay right where you are, and when we return... Dr. David Anderson will answer your questions about time control technology, his words, for what obviously is time travel. He has accomplished time travel. He's actually done it, folks. So what a program. Every now and then we stumble into one that just stuns me. This is one of those. From Manila in the Philippines, I'm Art Bell. Here I am. What an incredible program. My guest is Dr. David Anderson, and he has accomplished time travel. He he calls it time control technology. And we've had three hours of the most amazing program I, I think I've ever done. Uh, this is after eight years. And I want to thank Whitley. Whitley Streber, uh, who does Dreamland, online Dreamland, is the one who reconnected me with Dr. David Anderson and uh, we'll find out perhaps in a moment how that association uh, w- was accomplished. But it was amazing. Uh, Whitley said, oh, you know, I've been talking to this very interesting guy named David Anderson and had him on the show. And I said, David Anderson? You mean Dr. David Anderson? Yes. And from there it went. And I, you know, contacted Lisa, the producer, and asked her to uh, please follow up. And she did. And that's how all of this happened tonight. Just so you know, thank you, Whitley. Uh, We'll be back with Dr. David Anderson and your calls, your questions in a moment. Well, all right, very quickly, uh, Dr. Anderson, if you wouldn't mind, I am very, very curious. Uh, It was Whitley who once again brought us together, and I wonder how you connected with Whitley. Oh, um, interesting question. Uh, uh, What a lot of people don't know, I actually work as an ambassador for youth for the United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization. Since about 2001, and uh, I'm very active in uh, UN projects for youth around the world. And one of our sponsors is the very uh, um, and, and great supporters is the wonderful uh, a lady by the name of Marianne Martini from the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She is a, a, a I think a personal friend of Whitley's. Uh, they made a connection. He made a connection with me, and, and there you go. Uh, so it came out of my association, I, I believe, with uh, uh, Marianne. Okay. All right. Um, Well, again, uh, thank you, Whitley. Let's begin, and let's uh, start by going, I think, west of the Rockies. Uh, I don't have a name, but you're definitely on the air with Dr. Anderson. Uh, Good morning. Hi, Art. This is Jeff in Mendocino, California, listening on KKOH 780 AM. Yes, sir. And uh, 
And uh, after listening to, my, um, let's see, Michu Kaku the other night, and actually an Art Bell somewhere in time from KKOH last night, along with tonight's program, um, there was a, an individual that Ian talked to last night who, who indicated that there was a clock that stopped at 8.15, two days before August 6th bombing at 8.15, and the rest of the clock stopped. So my question is, based on uh, the last train t- uh, from Hiroshima, the author of that book that was on with Ian last night, his, his comment in the other programs, could there have been such an explosion from that nuclear blast in Hiroshima um, that actually threw time into reverse gear, stopping that clock two days before the actual blast happened in our normal time frame. Okay. Well, Jeff, thank you for the question. Uh, from, a, from a pure physics standpoint, um, uh, a nuclear blast obviously produces a tremendous amount of energies, uh, a lot of effects, uh, but to stop clock, stop a clock due to, a um, say, a, a temporal effect from a, a physical science standpoint is, uh, is probably not likely. Um, people could argue that a, stop, a clock could stop or turn backwards if uh, um, uh, time was accelerated. We know that can happen due to uh, great accelerations. For that example, maybe time could be slowed a little bit by um, the, you know, the acceleration experienced within a nuclear blast, but, uh, but not to that point that it would actually stop or reverse. Okay. All right. Let's go to a first-time caller line and say, top of the morning, you're on the air. Hi there. I really love this program. Um, my name is Sandra. I'm from Ohio. And um, I'm wondering if the doctor either knows of something he can talk about or maybe has a, a theory of uh, how to explain two things here. One is that business of everyone's sense of time speeding up. What's that all about? And uh, the second thing would be um, I'm in a client-based business. I interact with people from different walks of life all the time, and it's been 24 years in this business. And I can't tell you how many people I've come across that say in almost the same words that I have been using to my friends that it seems like in 1998 or thereabouts um, something happened where their sense of reality became skewed. And they say almost to a word, everyone says it feels like, this is not how it was supposed to be. That individual reality and what's happening in the world, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And then uh, continuing that it started back in 98, but it seems to be continuing and in, in, in that effect speeding up almost to where events that happen defy logic and almost physics, like if you want to make two chimps together and they give birth to a rabbit, it makes no sense. Um, can you explain anything possibly, a time travel experiments gone wrong or anything that would cause that that you know of? Mm. Okay. San- Sandra, great questions. Uh, uh, thank you so much. First off, with regards to sense of time, um, I-, I go back to just a-, a handful of words. We don't see the world as it is, we don't experience time it is, it is, we, we see and experience these things as we are. Everybody's perception of time is different. And I even mentioned on our website, we even find some references to cultures that have no reference to time in their culture or language. Uh, cultures uh, that don't have words for time, cultures that don't talk about the temporal um, order of things or the temporal quality of events. They only talk about the quality of events. So the, there's languages that actually have no past, present, and future active. Everybody's sense of time is different. This also comes back to the human factor, our experiences, the fact that time is perceived to move faster or slower 
by different people occurs many ways, in part because time is an illusion. It's a construct, construct of our biological and cultural evolution. In the end, it's, it's really just another dimension, like the three dimensions of space, north, south, east, west, up and down. I love your question about 1998, because this is something that, unfortunately, our, our people in our lab are not qualified to discuss, and I'm not, because it's not my background. But we have a lot of people around us who believe, we talked about the um, temporal tremor detectors, the TTDs we use. Um, it's what, we're looking for ways that this technology, and every time it's used, can be detected. It also helps us in our work as well. Um, but there is the belief, as I mentioned before, if you move through time and you change an event, uh, we don't see parallel universes spinning off. What we see is, is essentially just like moving through space and trampling those flowers in the flower bed as you come back uh, to where you started from, say the present, um, everything's been changed. The damage has been done. Um, but that means reality could change. The existence of people, for example, People that were there before you moved time, uh, moved through time and back, may no longer be there, or new people may be there who weren't there before. The question is, can human beings detect this? We actually believe, and it's based on speculation, but also on, best, uh, on a lot of conversation with fellow scientists, um, is that there are, several, there, are, there are people who have dedicated their lives to developing a, a greater awareness of, of space and time through training of their minds. You know, for example, in the Buddhist religion, uh, you talk to a Buddhist monk directly, which I've done a number of times, which I truly enjoy, um, uh, and you tell them that time passes, they'll look at you confused. What do you mean? Time stands still. It's always here. Um, but there are people who develop their minds that we feel will be in tune. A lot of people will be oblivious. There will be people in the middle of this event, say, if time is altered, or an event is altered, or a butterfly effect is created, there will be people who no longer exist. Uh, that information and energy will be transformed. Maybe there will be new people existing. We feel that a lot of that will go on completely with people totally unaware. But there are people who are very in tune to this, who have developed the training, um, and we do believe it's possible. We really try to take, while we're all scientists and engineers, we try to take a multidisciplinary approach to uh, to looking at this. But that's what we believe, Sandra. Great question. Okay. Uh, Professor, another David, this one from Kingman, Arizona, wants to know if the objects that you send into the past or future uh, at some point actually disappear and then reappear. The objects that we send into the future actually disappear and reappear. Um, the interesting, the, the interesting question of that. Remember, the uh, the short answer is into the future. No, into the past. We have some technical issues there on what we can view in the, those fields of closed time, like curves. But if you send an object into the future, remember it's within that field of closed time, like curves. So the object is there. Why it's being moved through time? While the rate of time is quite different, we can still see the object inside the field. Gotcha. Okay, uh, let's go all the way up to British Columbia and say good morning to John. John, you're on the air with Dr. Anderson. Well, thank you so much, Art. You are the appropriate host to speak with David, if I may say. Thank you. Uh, David, I subscribe to uh, Peter Moon's Montauk Pulse newsletter, and I can uh, vouch for the fact that he is one of your invaluable reporters as to the work you do. Um, and I, uh, I love that you use terms such as unity, uh, 
global moral ethics with respect to the ideologies that we currently are subjected to on the planet, but I won't go anywhere into that. I'd like to emphasize the word human in my subscription refers to our physical universe, and I would also like to concur with you, we are in an entropic phase of consciousness. Some of us are open to the positive, some the negative. We are beings having a human experience, and we're here to unify one way or another, to understand what it is to be human, or beings having a human, human experience. So uh, I feel we're here to restore balance one way or another. Um, so I would, uh, I would have to uh, expect that you have uh, hope and confidence that we can fix uh, our du- duality consciousness. Uh, yes, I, I love your words about uh, we're beings here as a human, uh, uh, having a human experience. That's so true. We see so little um, of of this reality uh, around us. We, we truly do. And, and I wish people, uh, and obviously the way you say it, uh, uh, John, is I, I can tell how much you feel it. But when you reach that point, uh, it, it creates such a, uh, a wonderful, new, wonderful new appreciation um, for that. And with regards to trying to fix it, we have to. Um, we have to try, and, and my only hope is that it will bring a unity. It'll make, it'll drop some of those barriers and give us a common purpose together, uh, maybe get us close to, closer to that Pandora. And thank you for mentioning Peter. Peter and I actually had some um, acquaintances when I was running the research center on Long Island, and interesting enough, he, uh, we invited him as a writer and author to join a United Nations project in Romania last year, and he uh, came and joined us, and it was just a wonderful experience to have him uh, working with the young people there. But, um, okay, all right, let's keep moving. Sasan, I believe it is, uh, on the first-time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. David Anderson. Hi, Art Bell, pleasure to talk to you. Um, Dr. Anderson, I have a question. I've always, of course, um, you know, the whole concept of space-time, going back into time and all that. But my question is, what I've always believed was that possible, because, you know, with the time that light takes to reach, and if we were able to go back in time, for example, we could only, like Art was saying earlier, be viewers, not participators, because it's just the light that we're seeing. What makes it, and because I want to learn, I love learning, what makes it, that we can actually interact rather than just participate because it's the light from the past? Mm-hmm. Great question. Uh, I would say that the view that you're expressing, uh, it's a common one uh, because a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to some works. But if you want to learn, uh, a couple names, Kurt Godel, German mathematician, Frank Tipler, um, American physicist, uh, they introduced the, essentially the concepts of closed time-like curves. And, 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 and with regards to Einstein's theory of special relativity, um, it suggests that you must move faster than the speed of light to go backwards in time. You really, truly can't loop. You can't do that, so you really can't loop time back on itself. But what Kurt Godel proposed in the 40s and Tipler refined and now has been proposed across many different ways, um, uh, cosmic strings, uh, time warp field, and other areas, you actually can loop time back on itself at sublight speeds to avert, emerge in the past at, a, at the same point earlier in time. And that does not violate the laws of math and physics. So if you want to learn, I'd recommend reading a little bit about Kurt Godel 
and uh, Frank Tipler. And actually, you'll find a, a free presentation, actually, on different um, time control technologies on our website. Just go to the educational tab, and there's a wonderful presentation. And feel free to contact me uh, via the Institute website or on Facebook, uh, and I'd be pleased to have any discussions with you. All right. Before we move on, do you have any new books or documentaries coming in the future that uh, that you'd like to share with everybody? Uh, well, actually, there, there's a couple things going on uh, with regards to um, this whole su- subject of moral uh, a moral compass to uh, guide this application of the technology. We need to educate. So we have a major educational initiative. As you know, we have a documentary, uh, Time Travel's Journey into Time. It's available on Amazon. We're coming out with a series of six educational uh, lecture videos uh, that cover these topics, including the new technologies. You'll see those rolled out about one every two months for the next 12 months. Uh, And we also, um, as part of this educational initiative, Art, we encourage everybody to visit the website. Uh, We we plan not just to be offering books uh, and documentaries. Uh, We want to provide a lot of free materials for educators. Uh, is part of our small way of trying to support making some of this work transparent. So keep an eye on the Anderson Institute website in the educational tab. You're going to see a lot of free information being made available there. Okay, and that website is? AndersonInstitute.com. All right, very good. Uh, To the wild card line, good morning. You're on the air with Dr. Anderson. Yes, hi, Dr. Anderson. Hi, this is Bill in West Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, doctor, I know physics. I'm an amateur astronomer. And you mentioned that uh, people relating uh, time travel and time to people as, as information, information or what I would say is intelligent energy. And as we know from physics, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Question number one, I have two questions together. Question number one, does that mean that once the body dies, our mind, I would call it the mind instead of the soul because I am an atheist myself. The mind continues on, but also since it cannot be created, we don't need a God of any kind to create us. We existed always in the past and will exist always in the future. That's my theory. Question number two, if we went back to the time of Christ, would we see that Jesus Christ never really existed because there's only days so-called data about Christ. It's in biblical references where people automatically believed in him, and it was written hundreds of years, 200 years after he supposedly was born. So there really was no Jesus Christ to begin with. There was no crucifixion. Only your dying may tell. Um, I don't know. Doctor? Well, great. Uh, good questions, Bill. Thank you for the call. Uh, I appreciate your words and building on it. Um, uh, it takes a lot of insight, uh, but I think it's a good one, is that what we call our lives as human beings, we're just simply a microscopic manifestation of information and energy from a much larger macroscopic universe. We're just this tiny little view from one small dimension of the true uh, of, of true consciousness and information and energy in the universe. Uh, can um, Does consciousness continue? We know that, um, again, what we observe in the lab, that information and energy, we believe consciousness does continue. Um, We can't take it much further than that, but we do believe that that order and information and energy does not disappear. It may transform. It may change shape. But that information and energy, it's not like entropy in our world. That entropy is is, is an issue of the fact that we are viewing a small um, a small subset of dimensions of a much larger multidimensional reality. Um, but we do believe that conscious moves forward. With regards to uh, the actual experiences of Jesus Christ, 
uh, it is one of the most common topics and one of the most provocative topics among what should be one of the first uses of, of, of going back in time to witness events. And, um, you know, it kind of touches on the, the subject of is there a God, is there not a God? Um, uh, I think it's very controversial. There's a lot of concern over that topic, and I can't say I really have a lot of, a lot of views on, on what would happen if we went back to, to witness that. Do you plan to? I, I, I think it's going to happen, Art. Um, I think as part of that moral compass, we need to have guidelines and understand the implications of what we do. There is probably, as much as there's more curiosity, there actually is a tremendous amount of it, and I don't use the word lightly, fear in going back. Could it disrupt the foundation of one of the major religions of this planet? Um, or, or support it. All right, Doctor, support. hold on. We're, that's right. We're at a break point here again. Time is just flat flying. So we'll be back shortly from Manila in the Philippines with Dr. David Anderson. I'm Art Bell. Maybe it should be kilometers and kilometers. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. What an incredible program. Dr. David Anderson, a man dabbling in, well, that's the wrong word, time control technology, time travel, actually. And I think he's laid quite a strong case out on the table, uh, this night, this morning. We're going to continue with your questions and observations in a moment. Stay right where you are. Well, I'm right back to Dr. David Anderson. By the way, you can reach him through his website, the one he just gave out. You can reach me. I'm Art Bell at MindSpring.com. If you'd like to fire off an email, love to hear from you. Art Bell, A-R-T-B-L-L at MindSpring.com. Dr. Anderson, if you're ready, here we go. Absolutely. Here comes Aaron in Lafayette, Louisiana. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Art. How's it going? Pleasure to speak with you, man. It's my mom's birthday today, and she was uh, very uh, excited to hear your voice come across the radio. Um, I actually have a two-parter question here. Um, actually, uh, it's a couple of questions I've had for quite some time. I was wondering if our, if our present right now uh, could possibly be the direct result of time travel already. So I guess what happened has happened uh, mm-hmm. to the fact where, you know, so whatever time travel has done in the future already has already affected what has happened. So things that have happened have already been a direct result of that. And um, on the other hand, uh, ghosts and spirits as we perceive them, uh, could that possibly be um, the fact of time travel's effect on time and possibly making time overlap on itself, like the present become or the present and the past kind of start becoming in the same present per se? Okay. All right. A two-part question. Uh, are we experiencing what we're experiencing now, our reality now, uh, Doctor, is it possibly already affected by travel that's been done? Well, going back to the caller earlier, uh, we have a lot of people who have talked about 1998 is a, a pivotal event where yes. uh, people began to perceive changes uh, being made in the timeline. Uh, again, what we see in the lab is... Um, is that many people will be unaware, and, and people could be, and this is why this could be so catastrophic, people could be erased from existence or added to existence based upon somebody going back in time. But um, unlike a parallel universe, uh, this happens uh, at, that, at that instant, and some people may be more sensitive to it uh, than others. Do I believe it's happened? I would say that the amount of experimentation that we see, absolutely yes. Is 1998 the first year? I don't know. Um, 
Uh, the second point I would add, I'd like to say happy birthday to Aaron's mother uh, today, and thank Aaron for the call. And with regards to ghosts, uh, remember we are a, um, we're just a, um, what I want to say, a uh, uh, beings of, of information and energy with a higher consciousness, just living a human experience in a small number of dimensions. Uh, the possibility that ghosts could be um, people traveling in time or uh, glimpses of entities in other dimensions is quite possible. There's nothing in science, uh, uh, again, that would prohibit that from being a possibility. Okay. All right. Brian in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Dr. David Anderson. Hi. Hello, Art. I would like to sincerely thank you for your service to this country and this planet, and I want to thank my uh, college teacher who told his entire class about 300 people to listen to Coast to Coast for the first time. So thank you, Art. Thank, thank um, you both. Well, um, I just wanted to point out that there is something that I think you guys would both enjoy watching. It's a Simpsons episode, a treehouse of horror from season six, where Grandpa tells Homer in a, in a flashback sequence, if you ever travel back in time, don't step on anything, because even the tiniest change can alter the future in ways you cannot imagine. And I'm telling you, you guys will laugh and enjoy it. So please check it out. It's a, Anyhow, I have two questions. One, how could you possibly use the scientific method to test a technology this powerful? And number two, could a rapidly expanding universe and dark matter be due to alternate universes that have been created by changes made through time travel? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. Doctor? Well, actually, uh, the first question about uh, how can you use a scientific method uh, I want to be clear that the background of everybody at the Anderson Institute is primarily physicists, scientists, engineers. Um, we do follow a, a, a scientific method. I'd also um, emphasize that we strive really to take a, a, a multidisciplinary approach to time. Remember, as, as, as human beings, in, in our view of the world as we see it, not as, as it is, uh, we truly don't, it's very difficult to visualize. And a concept uh, like time that can't be defined so well, I encourage everybody, please, to take a multidisciplinary approach. I'd also emphasize that we made a reference earlier in the show to the deep uh, spiritual traditions and religions in India. We talked a little bit, just briefly touched uh, and referenced the Buddhist religion. Uh, But you would be very surprised. Uh, Some of the people I know who are most in tune, kind of human TTDs or temporal tremor detectors, are people who are really disciplined in the Buddhist religion. And uh, believe it or not, there are a lot, it could be a show in itself, there are a lot of parallels between the scientific method and the method in which uh, Buddhist monks uh, develop their theory and the foundations of their religion. So uh, uh, so I, I think putting the label on scientific method, um, um, I would say uh, it can be used, but it needs to be used complementary in light of everything else. And Art, I apologize, I did lose the question. I heard dark matter. I didn't hear the second half of it. Well, that's what I got out of it, too, dark matter. He was asking... I guess about uh, a validation of, of dark matter, whether you uh, – that was a subject, of course, that uh, okay. do- Dr. Kanku – yes, go ahead. Yeah, there, yeah, there's a lot of views about, uh, uh, about dark matter, but I, I would, I'd be bold, and, and I'll go out on a limb here, and I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong many times before, and I'm happy to admit it. Uh, but I would say that dark matter is a label we put on something we don't understand, just like gravity. I, I don't want to open up a can of words, but – uh, frankly, the, the common view in physics now is that gravity doesn't exist. It's, it's ridiculous to think that there's this 
giant hand on the back of the moon, pushing it and keeping it from spinning away from the Earth. Gravity is simply curved space-time in action. And um, gravity is also a label we put on something we don't understand. Uh, we can measure gravity. We can, re we can uh, predict how things will happen, but we don't know what gravity is. And the same thing is true with dark matter. Um, do I believe, um, as we develop and continue to develop uh, better views, uh, not our area of expertise, but in, in string theory, yeah, we might have an understanding on something that might fall into the category of dark matter. But right now, for me, it's more of a, an emphasis or a label on something that we don't understand. But I do appreciate the work very much that's being done in the area to try to okay, define it. Okay, all right. Uh, sorry, Justin, in Billingham, Washington, you're on the air with Dr. Anderson. Hi. Oh, the kingdom of Nye is truly everywhere. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, David, you know, I, you, you alluded to spherical time, and, it, and I heard uh, a, sh a show on Coast to Coast here about a pilot, you know, and wherever these conditions exist, this effect could happen. It, the pilot was in the Bermuda Triangle, and he was flying through or around four thunderstorms. And in a series of minutes, I don't remember exactly, between 10 and 18, Never lost contact with the tower, but when he finally got they got a fix on him, he you know he was a hundred miles closer. But couldn't that have been like a magnetic or what, however, field holding the plane? And maybe that's like an observation. So it was you know time was relative. Both times existed, but ten minutes for him was however fast the Earth spun for for a hundred miles. Does that make well, sense? Well, it's interesting. We, we talked before about uh, what we see as the coupling of um, the, the energy that we create and the fields of closed time-like curves being a coupling or a discharge of the potential energy in twisted space-time around the Earth. It is possible. There are theories um, that we haven't been able to demonstrate. There are theories that that could naturally occur, just like lightning occurs as a discharge of potential energy uh, between electrical charges around the planet. We do believe it could occur naturally. When it did happen, what would happen is you would get a massive, uh, very highly intensified field of closed time-like curves, which could cause um, moving an object through time. It, it's a reach, but it is possible. Uh, with regards to spherical space-time, just to uh, 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 blow people's mind a little bit for something to think about, is uh, we, we mentioned time being spherical, as you mentioned, Justin. If, if you ever done an exercise and put a penny on a table, um, you can actually put six pennies around it perfectly as a kissing point in that two-dimensional world. Um, and we believe in a two-dimensional reality. Once you get the six pennies around the two-dimensional reality, it condenses, it creates a situation where it condenses and collapses into one. What we see in the laboratory, we have a paper coming out talking about space-time fabric being more of a spherical model, not the arrow of time anymore, but a spherical model. And we're seeing the same thing. If you take a sphere now in a three-dimensional world, you can essentially put 12 kissing spheres around it almost perfectly, touching each other, and it condenses down. That's why when we hear like Dr. Kako talk about uh, a superstring theory, and from our three-dimensional observation perspective, what we see is once you hit that 12 point, it collapses into one. So you never exceed 11 dimensions in a three-dimensional world in perspective in superstring theory. But if you change your perspective, you'll see something different. <laughs> All right. Rafael in uh, San Pedro, California, you're on the air with Dr. Anderson. Hi. Hey. Thank you, Mr. Bell. I just sure. want to tell you uh, I really appreciate your show that you started many years ago, and I've been learning ever since. And I really thank appreciate you. it. Uh, Dr. Anderson, 
I would like to know your definition of the word time or what time, what your definition of time is. I was wondering if I would be too correct in the, it's just something that I've always thought about. And the only thing I could come up with is time to me is the distance between point A and B, and I'll take the answer off the air. And I was wondering if I was correct. Thank you. Well, from a cultural perspective, time has developed exactly that way, Raphael. We, we, we use it as a, a, a measure of motion. Uh, many philosophers initially talked about that. Um, what I like is uh, more along the lines of some of the uh, later philosophers like St. Augustine, who talks about time being an illusion of the human mind, an artificial construct. Uh, and I think that's what we see. We see evidence why the... The physical definition of time and how time divide, um, um, developed in our culture is exactly the way Art described it earlier and the way you just described it. People looked at it as the number or measure of motion that they could observe. Uh, St. Augustine, which uh, is the, the latest philosopher to promote a, promote a radical view, said, no, it's an illusion of the mind. And, and that's what we see. Time is just essentially a, another dimension, but um, again, we don't see the world the way it is. We see the world the way we are, and we've been bred and our human mind and culture uh, and biology has been developed to perceive it one way. When we step out of that, and again, turn your wristwatch into meters, read Space-Time Physics by John Archibald Wheeler, um, you'll see how amazing it is. Um, time should no longer be treated as seconds. It should be treated as meters, and everything becomes clear and easy from a mathematics standpoint. Okay. Ryan in Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania, your turn. Uh, hey, how's it going, guys? Um, pleasure to be on the show. Um, I just had a couple quick questions. Um, my first question was on um, superconductivity and um, fluids that um, can contain a magnetic charge and along with um, spiraling rotation um, can produce anti-gravity effects. Or, Well, actually, I like your point you just made on gravity and dark matter. I agree with that. But some sort of effect there. And also, um, I like to entertain the theory of the monotonic gold theory and um, I just wondered what your perspective was on that. So, what, what, what was that last question, please? Uh, monatomic gold, um, and um, just like powers that it has, and you know, as it being in the Ark of Covenant. I don't know, but um, okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? Though. Oh yeah, actually, we've had a number of people uh, sending emails to us on, on the subjects. But Ryan, thank you for the questions. <clears throat> With regards to superconductivity, uh, it can be important in our work uh, when we're trying to uh, uh, create certain types of control fields that uh, move very close to the speed of light. So obviously superconductivity is a natural part of, of this science in, in how we initiate, initiate uh, different control fields, if you will. If you really want to move something fast, close to the speed of light, you need something superconductive. Um, with Doctor, regard- you're, you're using, um, I'm sorry, you're using electromagnetic um, fields modulated by lasers or controlled by lasers. How would you put it? Well, the control systems are pretty complicated. The, the easiest definition is um, we have a controlled chamber, a controlled environment with a chemical reagent. We use high-powered lasers uh, and rotating electromagnetic fields to... Uh, inject or initiate a field. Once a field starts, depending on the, whether it's a, a standalone time warp field jet or whether it's a time reactor, how we control it is very complex art. Uh, the number of subsystems and, and controllers that go into making this happen uh, is quite diverse. 
and there's a couple of those, um, uh, I'll say, controllers that do use uh, uh, elements of superconductivity. Okay. All right. Uh, Lorianne on the international line. Lorianne, I don't know where you are. Uh, where are you? I'm in British Columbia. BC. Okay. You're okay. on the air. All right. Um, I was wondering if uh, time travel is real. Can't we go, or like, can't you go ahead in time to uh, December twenty second, two thousand and twelve, to see if the prophecies are true? Well, that's actually it's, an interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it certainly is possible. Uh, just like, is it, um, it is it possible to look forward in time and to try to retrieve information from the future, like cures for diseases? This comes back to the moral and ethical. Um, consequences of, of, of doing that, why we're willing to do experiments within a certain time frame, reaching that far into the future or the past and pulling information could have dire consequences. But as the caller mentioned earlier, uh, perhaps these things are already being done. I'm referring to the caller that uh, mentioned 1998 and kind of a pretty much a worldwide outpouring from uh, a small group of people um, about a feeling that uh, timelines had been adjusted. So is it possible? Absolutely, yes. Um, should we apply it to do that, to look backwards in time, to, to study you know, how developments really occurred in history and on Earth um, or beyond? Uh, the answer is yes, but I think we have a bigger question is, are we willing to take the risk to do some of these on a wide scale? We're concerned on doing it on a small scale. Uh, and we know people are being much more bolder than us in uh, in other countries. So we just uh, comes back to the question of: Do we truly understand the consequences, and are we willing, really, really willing to take that risk? Lots of moral ethical questions. For example, if you go into the future, just as an example, and you um, you discover or you find discover is the wrong word, you find the cure for cancer. Ethically, I guess, and morally, you'd have to release that to the public or to a scientist who could pursue it. But on the other hand, you're stealing in a way. In other words, you have you have taken the work, the intellectual property of somebody who has discovered cancer, and stolen it. It's it's like it's like I don't know. It's like stealing a motion picture or something. Only a lot more. Exactly. The the real challenge is what, um, and this has been done before. There are many examples in, in our time, Art of where people saw an obvious benefit and introduced a change in an environment in an ecosystem or in a situation expecting a wonderful result and instead produced uh, cataclysmic um, uh, impact or events on, on a negative um, manner. And uh, I, I think that's the question of while we want to improve the quality of life and reduce s suffering, we do want to do that, uh, but when we begin manipulating time, um, both for ourselves and the entire planet, which is all connected. We've got to remember that. It is all connected, and that's the reality in which we live. How much is too much? And do we understand the complexity and the ripple effect or butterfly effect, as you put it, um, that that could create? This has been an amazing program, Professor. Just absolutely amazing. I Again, uh, we're at the end of it. So your, your website, um, information you've got coming out, what, would you, what do you want people to do? What I'd like people to do, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, first, uh, website AndersonInstitute.com. Uh, we provide a lot of free information. There's an educational tab that's being expanded now. There's free educational presentations there. You'll see a lot more. 
Uh, we do have a video, Time Travel Journeys into Time, on Amazon.com. But more importantly, uh, over the next 18 months, you're going to see six new lecture videos and series become available on this subject. I'd encourage you to visit the website, uh, plug into the Research Association. It's free and easy to join, and uh, uh, study and learn. That's all I could ask you. Help us make and unify the planet using Doctor, thank you. As a Right. I'm, we're out of time. Thank you, Doctor, and uh, good night. We'll do it again soon from Southeast Asia, Manila in the Philippines. When they next call my name, I'll be back. Until then, I'm Art Bell. Good night, all.